All right, and welcome back to another exciting adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, Facebook, and now carried up on iHeart. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the Radio Chick Annie, or I should say Radio Chickadee, correction, Radio Chickadee. All right, and I'm hearing that there's no sound. Can you? Yeah, I didn't hear the intro. Oh, wow. Holy moly. I went for a whole... Did you hear the commercial? No. No? No. Oh, my goodness. What happened? I had it turned up. It came through on my headset. I apologize. So those listening, Annie screwed up the start of another show, as always. (laughs) Oh, anyway, welcoming everyone here... uh, Along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, you should have said something. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well. (laughs) Well, I know the glory day shot to shit. I did type. But I I wasn't looking at the the screen. I was looking at the uh, Facebook. But we're up uh, live on Facebook. Uh, Hopefully, we're up a source live on YouTube. I don't know. Anyway, we've got ourselves a lineup today that is phenomenal. We've got Republican National Committee Press Secretary Mandy Merritt joining us. Uh, we have retired Air Force uh, Brigadier General Robert Spaulding returning. He's the author of the book Stealth War. Uh, we discussed with him it's how China took over while America's elite slept. And, oh, boy, what, what a day to have him on the show. Uh, we also have Dr. Dean Hart. He's a microbiology uh, expert. And he's also a published author on the transmission of viruses and diseases. So he's going to be talking to us about uh, the COVID or Wuhan virus and its impact on major metropolitan and urban centers. Um, We also have Bill Whittle. You know him from BillWhittle.com, The Right Angle. Uh, Bill Whittle now. He's also the host of Stratosphere. Uh, And then we're going to end up with a gentleman from the Heritage Foundation. He's a legal fellow at the Meese. Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage, Zach Smith. Oh, try to say that three times fast, Curtis. <laughs> no, thank you. Hey, is that um, associated with Edwin Meese, that center? Former, I think he's um, former Attorney General, Edwin Meese. I, have I to would look assume in- so. I would assume so. Uh, you know what? That was a good question. I should have looked at that and found out. Uh, ahead of time, but uh, maybe you can do a little finger, uh, do a little yeah. finger hunting with uh, Google. Yeah, oh man! Uh, but we have a lot to talk about, a lot to do, and um, want to give a special shout out to a friend of the show that always is tirelessly plugging us and just sits there quietly in our studio listening in. Sweet Sue from New Mexico. Sue, I got your emails. I started looking at them, but I have been so swamped with everything that's been going on at home here. Uh, so I will, I honestly, yes, I have looked at everything, and a lot of it looks interesting. So I'll talk to you soon. Sooner or later, I'll pick up the phone and call you anyway. Um, wow. Where do we start for this? There's so much to talk about. Um Two weeks ago, we did the dedication to the fallen heroes, which were the law enforcement officers that fell in the line of duty. And to date, NYPD has not had a complete and comprehensive list of 
which members have fallen in the line of duty. Um, that's something we're going to be talking about a little bit after the dedication before our first guest comes on. Uh, last week, we did it to all the medical uh, uh, staff that have fallen in the line of duty as they attend to COVID victims. And today's dedication is going to go out to the U.S. firefighters who have died in service from the COVID-19 virus, or as properly named, the Chinese virus or Wuhan virus. And this is from firerescue1.com, and it's very brief. It states, as the COVID-19 continues to spread around the country, the first responders on the front lines are incredibly vulnerable to contracting the virus. As was feared, the death toll now includes a growing number of fire service personnel. What follows is a compilation of the reports by state of U.S. fire service personnel, active and retired, who have died of the coronavirus-related complications. For cities with multiple diagnoses, the links are ordered chronologically, with the top being the most recent. And it starts. Colorado, Aurora, Colorado. Paramedic, past firefighter medic dies from COVID-19. No name is given. In these, no names are offered, just the fact that an individual has passed. Seminole, Florida, the fire chief dies from COVID-19. In Illinois, Chicago firefighter dies from covid a second Chicago firefighter died. From Terre Haute, Indiana, a firefighter died. From Ascension Parish, Louisiana, a fire coordinator died after 50 years fire service. In Maine, in Edgecove, a New Jersey volunteer firefighter at the age of 77 died from complications. From Jackson, a line of duty death of a mayor, Maine fire lieutenant when he suffered cardiac arrest after returning from quarantine. In Michigan, a Detroit fire captain dies from complications. Huron Township, a Michigan paramedic, a former fire lieutenant, died from COVID-19. In New Jersey, Passaic City, a firefighter EMT has died. Little Falls, a firefighter FD President died from COVID-19. Edison, a New Jersey fire captain, dies. Monmouth County, a New Jersey firefighter EMT, dies. Bergen County, New Jersey fire captain, EMT, EMS instructor, dies of COVID-19. From Ocean City, a New Jersey firefighter died after a long and tough battle with COVID-19. In Oakland, a New Jersey assistant fire chief and police officer dies of COVID-19 complications. In New York, an FDNY, New York City Fire Department ambulance mechanic dies. A FDNY duty deputy chief inspector dies. A retired FDNY fire marshal dies. An FD fire protection inspector dies. Valley Stream, New York, 
line of duty death, New York firefighter EMT 9-11 responder dies. From Putnam County, a New York 911 dispatcher, a former fire chief dies. Medford, more than 150 first responders paid respects to a New York firefighter who died from COVID-19. New York City, an FDNY mechanic supervisor and Long Island volunteer firefighter dies. White Plains, New York, deputy chief fire chief dies. New Rochelle, a New York fire captain dies. Again, New York City, an FDNY fire protection inspector, fire alarm expert dies. In Pennsylvania, Tully Town, an assistant fire chief dies. Robesona, an assistant fire chief EMT dies. Tennessee, Gallantin, a retired Tennessee fire captain dies after an outbreak at a nursing home. And finally, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a former Milwaukee firefighter, Navy veteran, dies of COVID-19. Today's show is dedicated to all these brave men and women that served as U.S. firefighters and died in the service from the COVID-19 virus. We dedicate this show to them and to all the first responders, be they law enforcement, emergency responders, or firefighters, to the military who served from the birth of this nation through today and the veterans who continue to serve and we owe our dedication to. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herringdon. My name is America. May God bless each and every one. And if you don't get sound, Curtis, please let me know right away. All right, it looks like we seem to have a problem. We seem to be having a problem with the soundboard. Something is not working right on doing the sound. I don't know what that is, but I will look into it and see if I can get it fixed for our next show. But it looks like I got no clips today. 
Anyway, thanks, Curtis, for letting me know. Jeez, I don't know what's going on here today, but we have no sound coming off from my second computer. And I don't know why. That is really, really weird, Curtis. Really weird. We might have been hacked. You never know. Not my sound is up 100%, so it should be coming through. And I don't understand that. Second computer, all the settings are correct, so I don't know why there's no sound. And you can hear it, right? I could hear it clearly on mine. So I don't know why it's not. That is strange. And I'm looking at my other settings on my main computer, and everything is correct here. Because if everyone can hear you and they can hear me, then everything should be fine. I don't know why that's doing that. All right. Back to the drawing board. Anyway, I pulled this article up. And, again, thank you, Sue, for sending this to me. I did uh, have a little heads up on this because it involves a friend of mine, Patty Lynch. And this was carried in the New York Post. A New York City head of health rejected NYPD's pleas for more um, personal protection equipment, which specifically masks. And she turned around and told them, I don't give two rats asses about your cops. This reads from Larry Salona and Julia Marsh and Bruce Golding. New York City's health commissioner blew off an urgent NYPD request for 500,000 surgical masks as the coronavirus crisis mounted, telling a high-ranking police official that I don't give two rats asses about your cops, the Post has learned. Dr. Oxrisis Barboth made the heartless remark during a brief phone conversation in late March with NYPD Chief of Department Terrence Monahan. Sources familiar to the matter had said. Monahan asked Barboth for 500,000 masks, but she said she could only provide 50,000. Now, mind you, there's something close to 40,000 cops, active duty cops in New York City. She told Deputy Chief Monahan, I don't give two rats asses about your cops. I need them for others. The conversation took place as increasing numbers of cops were calling out sick with symptoms of COVID-19, but before the department suffered its first casualties from the deadly respiratory disease. NYPD has recorded 5,490 cases of coronavirus among its, oh, it's increased. When I left, it was 35,000. It's now up to 55,000 cops and civilian workers, with 41 deaths, according to figures released. Now, this is my friend Patrick Lynch, president of the Police Benevolent Association, called for Barbo to be fired over her despicable and unforgivable comments. And I will call for the same thing, Patty. I'm 100% behind you on this one. She should be fired the spot. In the wake of Barbo's crass rebuff of Monaghan, NYPD officials learned from the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene had a large stash of masks, ventilators, and other equipment stored in a New Jersey warehouse. The department appealed to City Hall, which arranged for NYPD to get 250 surgical masks. The Federal Department of Homeland Security and FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, also learned about the situation, leading FEMA, thank you, to supply the NYPD with Tyvek suits and disinfectant. 
a source who was present during a tabletop exercise at the City Office of Emergency Management Headquarters in Brooklyn in March, recalled witnessing a very tense moment when Monaghan complained to Mayor Bill de Blasio in front of Barbo about the NYPD's need for personal protection equipment, saying, for weeks, we haven't gotten an answer. De Blasio, who was seated between Monaghan and Barbo, asked her, Oxrisis, what is he talking about? When Monaghan said the gear was vital to keeping cops safe, de Blasio said, you definitely need it, and told Barbo, Arexis, you're going to fix this right now. Last week, Barbeau, who has been a routine participant in de Blasio's daily coronavirus briefings, was noticeably absent when de Blasio announced that the city's public hospital system will oversee a major testing and tracing program. And even though the DOH was previously run similar programs, his honor also heaps praise on the head of NYC Health and Hospitals, Dr. Michael Katz, saying, when you have an inspired operational leader, you know, pass the ball to them is my attitude. De Blasio named Barbeau the city's health commissioner in 2018 following a resignation of Dr. Mary Bassett, who took a job at Harvard University School of Public Health amid an investigation into the DOH's failure to alert federal officials to elevated levels of lead in the blood of children living in city housing projects. Wow. Wow. You've got first responders out there on the front lines and a person that is supposed to be working with them hand in hand. Another member of the government denying them the vital equipment they need. Now, last week, the number of NYPD, cop, NYPD cops assigned to the subway system, not assigned citywide, but assigned specifically to the subway system, as of last week, we had known of 70 deaths from this virus, of just the subway system cops. And when they go back to their commands, they're spreading the virus to the cops that handle the rest of the city, to the civilian staff. These men and women out there need these things to protect the public. And, and well, to have a specific official to, to have that sort of an attitude. Apparently, she was not a, a fan of law enforcement. You know, a lot of people come up um, hating um, cops, and, and I don't know why firemen, but it, it shows, you know no matter what field they get into. And she just happened to show it at that time. Uh, I think she should have got fired. Absolutely. De Blasio should have fired her. He appointed her. She serves at his his pleasure. He should have immediately fired her. So maybe that's in the offing because she was absent from the last briefing. Maybe that's in the offing. Maybe De Blasio, somewhere along the way, shows he's got a pair of balls. Now, what's her name again? Her first name is spelled, it's really weird, O-X-I-R-I-S, Oxiris Barbeau, B-A-R-B-O-T, Dr. Oxiris Barbeau. Barbeau, She's the health commissioner. She's the health commissioner. 
matter who you are, if you're the health commissioner, you're responsible to everyone, whether they're friend or foe, for their health. You're looking out for the health and safety of the city by looking out for the health of the individuals. She's there to put in place uh, programs and processes to help ensure that health. And one of the most important things is you need law enforcement out there. You need the first responders out there on the front line. Who's going to be there when you have a little fender bender and you start screaming at the guy, oh, I need a cop here right now. I want you arrested for reckless driving. They're the first ones to call for the cop. And yet, the last ones to help support the cop. The hypocrisy from the left is absolutely stunning. Stunning. I don't know. I don't know what else to say on that one. Anyway. Um, there's so much more to talk about. I mean, I've got I've got <laughs> a stack here, uh, and it looks like uh, my video has also stopped. Holy moly! What else is going to go wrong today? Well, Everything I hear that you, wrong. I hear that your favorite senator is finally going to hold some hearings. At least that's what he said last night on, uh, I think it was Hannity or Tucker. He finally is going to have some uh, hearings on uh, what's been happening with the Flint case. So we'll see. So far, there's been a lot of talk, no action. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what Lindsey Graham does, I don't know. You know, he had he more like saying he's going to set, set a precedent if he calls Obama, and then he says, well, then it's a possibility. Which way is it, Lindsey? Now, I understand setting the precedent, because the last thing you want is to set a precedent that whatever the sitting president is, when they get into office, the president-elect gets into office, they then call on the previous president to testify for whatever imagined crimes are. So I agree with that. But Obama should still be made accountable for what happened under his administration. So it's a very tricky line that's going to have to be walked. So... But well, we do need it, to have investigations. Isn't this the same crew that wanted to um, bring Trump in to question him? They had no problem with that. Oh, true. True. They had no problem with trying to call President Trump in. But you also have to remember that uh, a sitting president had gone before and testified. Remember Bubba Clinton? You know, I did not have sex with that woman. And what is, is, what do you mean by is? <laughs> Unable to define is. <laughs> yeah. So we do have it where we have questions about a president testifying. Um, how they're going to work it, I don't know. But we'll, it's all going to be wait and see what happens. Um, it's going to be interesting. These are things that we're going to talk about with uh, Zach Smith. Uh, some of these things we're going to talk about. But I want to mention here, a little bit off subject here. Um, they have these stimulus packages that they pass, where now people make more money sitting at home collecting unemployment than they are working. And uh, we're finding that employers are contacting their employees and saying, listen, uh, your job's back open again. Come back to work. And there was some someone had uh, shown a whole slew of text messages between various employers and their employees saying text messages, you know, 
come back to work, and the employee's going, uh, no, I'm making more money sitting at home on unemployment. Why would I come back to work and, and lose money? So, you know, the left is trying to buy votes by making you dependent upon governing, which is they seem to be succeeding on doing because people are refusing to go back to work. Hey, I can sit home on TV and watch TV all day or play games or get on my phone and, and chat with my friends or, you know, go out and jog or walk the dog or, you know, places are starting to open up back again. I can go shopping and go to the mall. I can go out to restaurants now in a lot of places. Uh, in some places, you can go and finally get your hair cut. I know here we have in South Carolina, you can go outdoor dining, and now they've opened up indoor dining, but only at 50% capacity. So, you know, tourism is going to start opening back up again around here soon. And if everything goes to plan, the next phase would be 100% uh, open on the dining. But we're opening up as of Monday uh, gyms, um, hair salons, nail salons, barbershops. So life is starting to return to normal around here. And yet people are refusing to return to work because Uncle Sam is paying them more than an employer can. So, you know, we already know that approximately 25% of the restaurants nationwide are going to be permanently closed. Those jobs are gone. But what jobs are still left? They're begging for people to come to work. And it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Well, if I was the employer, I would remind these people, <laughs> you know, that, that, that government subsidy is going to end. And by the time it ends, if you wait on it, your job be gone. I'll give it to somebody else. <laughs> That's what I would say. <laughs> well, there was an article up on a story warrant. Actually, it was originally in the Washington Examiner. And what people don't realize, unemployment is a state-funded program. It's not a federally funded program. It's a state funded. But the federal government now wants to assist with the funding. Now, the Louisiana Workforce Commission paid 103,000 people a total of $153 million in unemployment benefits last year. All right? That totals to about $1,485 per person. All right? So it, it, seems, it doesn't seem like a lot of money. So obviously it was a well-tended program. It, they didn't want anyone to really abuse it. However, the Louisiana Workforce Commission Director Ava DeJoy said since March 21st, now this is only since towards the end of March, the Louisiana Workforce Commission has paid 400,000 people about $1.4 billion, which includes $323 million in state dollars which that totals per person since March 21st. Now, remember, it was $1,485 for the entire year per person. This is only since March 21st, a little bit over a month and a half. They have paid $3,500 per person. That's a 43% increase in payouts to people for unemployment. So if you've got over a month and a half Thirty-five hundred dollars. Um, I, I think you'd stay home too, wouldn't you? Instead of rather going back to work. Especially if I was getting six hundred dollars extra on top of the state unemployment. 
Now, what they're saying is their fund will only last another 16 weeks at the current rate of spending. Sooner or later, unemployment, as you said, is going to end. Those little perks, and people are then going to have to start looking for work. However, if the jobs are no longer there because the owner says, well, why would I reopen the business if I can't get employees? Let me go do something else. Now that job is gone forever. If people don't return to those jobs, those jobs will be gone forever because the owner will say, all right, I'll either decrease my workforce or I'll, instead of using an employee, I'll use automation or I'll just downsize or I'll just close. Now, the government, the liberal arm of the government, aided by the American people who have not spoken up and spoken against it, has now turned us into a socialist nation, dependent upon government. Instead of government being dependent upon the people, we are now dependent upon the government. I think it's time for us to take the government back and say enough is enough and tell Nancy Pelosi with her $3 trillion boondog of stimulus package just exactly where to place it. Well, most of the United States is waking up. I'm, I'm curious as to when people in California are going to wake up because uh, from what I hear, they want to extend it like three more months to stay in, oh, you know, really? at home. Or those people are going to rebel after a point. Well, we're going to be talking to Bill Whittle about that because he's out there in California, right smack in the heart of all this garbage going on. <laughs> so we're going to oh find out God. from him firsthand. <laughs> well, yeah. at least we won another seat there. I think we won two seats, Republican seats. Um, one was in California, I believe. Yeah, so um, that, that was Garcia. Right. Yeah, that was Garcia. He He took from a Democrat that seat. And believe it or not, that was within mail-in ballots. Now, the left has been pushing these mail-in ballots, saying, well, this is going to be our chance to steal the vote. Uh, well, in that district, it backfired, and he won something like by more than 12 points, not by just a couple of points, like two yeah, or three I think or it was even like five. By 12 50, 50, points, he won the seat. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I, I, I think those on the right have figured out what the game plan is from the left and are starting to use their tactics against them. So go ahead. You want to have you know, the popular vote? Let's get the popular vote back. And then when a Republican is elected, let's see how quickly you're going to scream to bring back the Electoral College. <laughs> well, there's another poll out that, that um, has Trump leading in 16 of the, um, you know, major states, um, the crucial states, and uh, you're not hearing that on uh, mainstream media. <laughs> mainstream media. <laughs> no. No, you're not. You're not at all. You know, what we have seen with this virus is absolutely amazing. And, you know, it's it's been very interesting from my viewpoint uh, having to deal with the health issues that I had with my mother having her stroke and trying to get her the care and everything while we're under this lockdown. Uh, and then also having the health issues with my husband, trying to get him his treatments. Um, I, I, what we have seen, even just going back and forth to Charleston for his cancer treatments, 
the change in people from the onset of the lockdown to now. And people are stir crazy. They really do want to get out of the house. And they have in Times Square, and this is something we're going to discuss with one of our guests later on in the show, um, a billboard that has a, a count up clock, not a countdown clock, a count up clock on the number of people who have died in the United States from the COVID virus. But the, the count up clock is blaming Trump for these deaths, saying he hasn't done anything. If anything, Trump has kept the number down. It could have been far worse if he didn't do the steps he did. Uh, but what I would like to know is how many people have died uh, from other situations that the lockdown caused, such as mental illness, by suicide, by domestic violence. How many people have died uh, because they couldn't get to the medical care they needed? How, what are the numbers of those deaths caused by this enforced lockdown? And how many lives would have been, what would the difference have been if um, instead we didn't do a lockdown, we did what Sweden did? What would those numbers have been compared to what they are today? Sure, we may have had a few more deaths from COVID, but how does that compare to the number of deaths we had caused by the lockdown itself? That would be something interesting to find out if anyone ever does that count. Yeah. Plus, I heard they were fudging the numbers on a lot of these um, um, cases. They, you know, like um, a person might have taken a couple of tests because, you know, you, you take the test one week and come up negative, and, and the next week you could be positive. But some people have taken tests as many three times to see if they contacted this um, virus. And what some of these states are doing or cities, they're counting each each um, occurrence of a test as an individual test, and they add that to the numbers to inflate the numbers. And that's not right. You know, they, they need to um, investigate that. Yeah, instead of saying we've done X amount of tests, we've tested X amount of individuals. So if someone has been tested right. three, four, or five times, you know, they count as just one instead of right. five. Uh, and what, what people don't realize is you can test negative and then five minutes later you walk outside or you go into a store or something like that you may contact the virus there's no guarantee that simply you took the test that you will remain virus free unless you've got the antibody in you now that's a different story and we don't know how long that antibody is stays in your in your system does it eventually dissipate and how long does it stay good these are all a lot of questions we're going to be asking during the show. Uh, we don't have these answers just yet. This is a new creature that we are, are being attacked by, a manufactured virus from Wuhan, China, that has been manipulated with the AIDS virus and malaria virus. Yeah, that's another thing it, that they don't tell you in the news, that uh, a lot of these um, viruses are man-made and they're patent as intellectual property. They're not saying that, you know. They, they're purposely making these things, and they're trying to um, make um, certain strands of it where it can pass from animal to humans. Now, you wonder why they would want to do that, but um, in the military sense, you know, they, they, they may have a reason to um, want to use that on the battlefield, but 
I think they they need to stop playing around, trying to be God, you know, because um, we see the results of it. Uh, that we do. That we do. And our guest should be calling in very shortly. Um, she's scheduled to be only with us for about 15 minutes. Um, but it, it, it is amazing some of the stuff that we're seeing going on around this. And, you know, I, I have to laugh. I, I, we talked about this, and I really get a kick out of this. I, I see people driving down the street. They're alone in their vehicle. Their windows are all rolled up, and it's got the mask on. Uh, what are you going to do? Give the virus to yourself? <laughs> people use a little common sense. You know, especially mm. if you're wearing glasses, these masks fog up your glasses. I mean, I can't see. I, mean, I I had to wear the mask on Wednesday when we went over to uh, MERC in Charleston. Uh, fine, I, I have no qualms about that. You know, you're in a medical facility, and they want to make sure everyone stays, you know, as reasonably <laughs> uh, virus-free as possible. And I don't definitely want to catch it because you know, sick people are in hospitals, and they're there for a reason. So, yeah, I had no qualms wearing the mask, but I tell you, I could not keep the fog off of my eyeglasses. You know? It was just driving me crazy. And how many people wear glasses today? Just about everyone. I don't know how people are keeping their glasses fog-free with these masks on. If someone can tell me how to do that, I'd love to know. I don't know, Curtis. I don't know. And there's another thing. There's um, doctors who are reporting that um, they're being um, pressured into attaching coronavirus to, you know, the you know when somebody dies from like heart attack or stroke or or whatever. You know, if there was any chance they may have had some form of coronavirus, they want to make that the main reason why they died, and. It just goes to show again that there's a political component to the way they're re- reporting this virus, and that needs to be investigated. It's, it's monetary because every hospital that, that has has a COVID, if a person dies, if they attach a COVID diagnosis to that body, the person could have died from a heart attack, uh, could have fallen out of their Archie Bunker chair, broke their neck. But if they attach a COVID virus diagnosis, they get, I believe, something like $33,000. So, of course, every single body that they get, they're going to attach that, that diagnosis too. If the person dies, and I think it's, it's something like 15000 If someone knows the exact amount, put it in the chat room, please. Uh, but if the person does survive, whatever their... their um, reason for being hospitalized is they still get a certain amount of money. So it's a paycheck to attach the COVID virus diagnosis to the individual. And I do believe this is our guest, and I want to welcome onto the show RNC Press Secretary Mandy Merritt. Good afternoon, Mandy. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Uh, my computers are misbehaving, but otherwise I'm doing fine. I think my they're, they're ready the for COVID the weekend, virus. too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it's such, such a shame we have you for such a uh, short time because there's so much to talk about uh, over here. Uh, one of the things I want to mention, uh, just before coming on air, uh, President Trump had a signing in the White House 
dealing with the Space Force. And is it true that we are now leading China in innovations in space? I believe it is. And as he, as President Trump has shown um, over and over that he is dedicated to this, he continues to reach new heights. And um, that's just another way that he's not only improving our military and on our capacity worldwide, but he's doing so in, in uncharted territories. It's, it's amazing. And I had a laugh because when they're trying to come up with the logo for Space Force, they had used something that looked like something out of Star Trek. And you had all these people go, no, you can't use Star Trek. So what's the logo? It's something that looks like it's out of Star Trek. He said he would be proud to... He said he'd be proud to hang it in the in the White House, and I'm sure it'll look great there. I'm sure it will. And I had a laugh because when he was signing those things to pass out to the people that attended, he says, uh, just don't put this autograph uh, up on eBay right away. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, 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 it's nice to have a president that has a sense of humor. Uh, we truly haven't seen you something know, like that is. since Ronald Reagan. It is. Someone I think that's that something – you're, you're completely right. I think it's something that attracted people to President Trump on day one. He just knows how to talk to everyday Americans, and that includes his sense of humor. But this is exactly why when you see him up in front of the American people, up in front of the White House press corps, he just talks and answers questions like what everyday Americans are wondering and feeling. He tries to cut through the jargon and talk directly to the people, and he is extremely good and effective at doing that. Now, um, the RNC just recently launched a new program out there called Protect the Vote that people can find at protectthevote.com. It's a digital platform that's supposed to help protect the elections. Um, tell us what, how that works. Absolutely. So you're seeing in, in battleground states all across the country, Democrats are suing to get rid of important uh, uh, safeguards for elections, such as signature matching or uh, legalizing ballot harvesting, which is the, the practice of sending political activists door to door to essentially collect ballots in mass. Democrats are using the coronavirus as an opportunity to push through a nationwide all vote by mail system, one size fits all with these, with these uh, safeguards really being watered down. So the RNC is fighting back. We have doubled our legal budget to $20 million to help protect against these uh, really electioneering proposals that would be for Democrat partisan benefits. And we've now launched protectthevote.com to kind of serve as a way for Americans to educate themselves on the various legal efforts that are going on across the country and how we're making sure that we're fighting back against the Democrats' assault on our elections. Now, um, I have to laugh, though, because they don't want um, the protections. They want the mail-in vote. Well, California just had a mail-in vote, and the Democrats lost a seat. They lost Hill's seat and went to Garcia, not by a few points, but by 12 points. You're completely right. We had some fantastic victories this week in our special elections, but specifically on the vote-by-mail push. Democrats are claiming that they want to do this vote-by-mail all-election because it would be protecting and, and helping the safety of Americans, but that's clearly only when it helps them. We saw them just completely derail against in-person voting in Wisconsin, but then when you went into California, you saw them open up an urban polling center uh, the weekend before the California 25 special election because they wanted to boost their chances. And in California, they 
still were allowing ballot harvesting, which is clearly in a contradiction with stay-at-home orders and the coronavirus because it's, it's bringing people door to door. So this has never been about the safety and protection of Americans. This is just the Democrats using the coronavirus and this crisis as a way to push through their long sought after election proposals. And we're seeing it, I, I, there was just a very interesting article out in Fox today in Nevada. The, um, they have now sent out ballots to all inactive voters. That means it's not just a person who requests an absentee ballot, they're automatically sent out, which is ripe for fraud. So in, in Nevada, they're seeing ballots being stacked up on bulletin boards and trash cans and apartment complexes because there's more ballots out there than voters, these inactive voters. And that is ripe for fraud. Anyone could get their hands on this. And that is why we have launched protectthevote.com to make sure we're fighting back against these efforts. Yeah, it's amazing because you mentioned ballot harvesting, and at one of my local county GOP meetings, um, I had turned around and I mentioned to our county chair, I said, are you aware that in South Carolina we have ballot harvesting? An individual can collect up to 12 votes. You know, it's not like California where you have unlimited, but we do have it here. And the vast majority of committee members in that room were completely unaware of it. There was one person that knew about it, and she was a former state representative. She was my former state representative. And she says, yeah, I was right. But people are unaware of what the voting laws are of their own state. So how can we battle things like this unless we are aware of what is out there, which is why I'm glad you've got something like this out there, protectyourvote.com, so that we can educate everyone else and we can fight back. You're, you're exactly right. And, and that's exactly why it, is a, it starts with education. It starts learning about your own state's laws. It starts by getting on protectthevote.com, seeing what's going on. And look, Republicans, the GOP, we've always supported absentee voting with the correct, we're not saying that there is no place for this. What we're saying is that the Democrats' attempt to strip away these important safeguards like signature matching, like mailing ballots out to all inactive voters, like legalizing ballot harvesting, those are the things that really open up the uh, opportunity for fraud in our elections. And certainly with everything going on right now in this country, Americans deserve to have confidence in their elections. And that's exactly why we're continuing to fight. All right. Um, someone was saying they couldn't get it sound, and I think I figured out what the problem was, and I think I fixed it, so it should be okay now. My equipment is finally back up. But another app, now this is really interesting. Because of the virus, uh, our candidates cannot go out there and campaign as they traditionally do, get out there and thump before a large crowd. So they're thinking of new and innovative ways in which to reach, reach the masses and get the message out. One thing is with these virtual uh, uh, rallies that Trump has that he has, which people can find on his website. But another thing, he's, he launched a, a, it's a free app, Trump 2020 campaign to engage people, where people can then go there onto the app and sign up for the virtual events. They can fully engage with, in how-to videos to inform supporters on how they can help reelect Trump. They can receive points and rewards. So he's he's taking this to a whole nother level, and it's going to go into you overdrive are, later so on right. this year. And that I is find because this we have such 
<laughs> we have such a fantastic army of grassroots supporters and volunteers out there that just want to help in any way they can. So you mentioned it, the new Trump uh, app, and then also trumpvictory.com, two fantastic ways that people can get involved. All you have to do is essentially either download the app or log on to trumpvictory.com, and you can become your own Republican headquarters. Gone are the days where you have to go into a brick-and-mortar location, especially during this coronavirus, so you can help reelect the president and Republicans up and down the ballot simply by making phone calls. For example, we have a fantastic tool known as Trump Talk, which allows you to make calls from anywhere in your home. We have a national week of action going on right now. We'd encourage everybody to get involved, make phone calls, and help reelect the president. And there's so much that he is doing that we have never seen before in the nation. And now he's starting to open up America again. And what I found when I was doing all my little homework last night, and uh, Mandy, you know, I, I make sure I know what I'm talking about. People are saying, well, you can't open up. What if we start getting the virus back again? But the virus is limited to just certain specific areas. Over half of the U.S. counties have had no COVID-19 deaths. Um, as of May 4th, just 10 states account for 70% of all U.S. cases and 77% of all deaths. Together, New York and New Jersey alone account for 38% of all cases and 48% of all COVID-19 deaths. So why can't we reopen America and just have these 10 states be a little bit slower about doing it? But as you notice that all these 10 states, they are a connecting hub through New York and New Jersey. You're, you're right. And that is why we've heard President Trump say repeatedly that we have to balance the economic priorities of this country reopening, getting people back to work, making sure our economy starts humming again with the safety and health of the American people. And he believes that we can do both. And that's exactly why he has expanded testing capacity to be at over 300,000 tests a day. It's exactly why you heard him talk about Operation Warp Speed today, which is a new um, uh, program to expedite the vaccine so that he says we have a vaccine available for everybody by the end of the year. He has completely unleashed the power of the private sector to help cut bureaucrat red tape in this process, and he's really doing everything in the administration's power to make sure that Americans uh, not only get back to work, but they do so safely. And I think Americans have seen how he has responded to this crisis with such unprecedented action, and they'll respond positively and continue to be reassured by this president. Now, I know before you go, you only have a few minutes left with us. I want to address Nancy Pelosi's um, stimulus package, $3 trillion. Uh, the second I heard that number, I screamed at the TV, where's the money going to come from? But in this, she's got uh, $1,200 payments for undocumented aliens, uh, undocumented <laughs> immigrants, she calls them, uh, $3.6 billion for mail-in voting, $20 million for arts and humanities. I'm sorry, I don't want to give any of my tax dollars to an overpaid actor. Um, $100 million for domestic violence prevention. Well, I can see that because if you're locked in a home with a spouse that you're not accustomed to spending 24 hours a day with, there probably is going to be an uptick in domestic violence. But over 60 different mentions of marijuana, of cannabis in the bill, and bank loans and financial services for cannabis. 
this is a pork. Nothing but pork. You are you could not have, I couldn't have said it better myself. Nancy Pelosi and Democrats continue to use the coronavirus as an opportunity to reshape the country in their own liberal agenda. You said it yourself. The word of cannabis appears more than job in this new stimulus bill. Nancy Pelosi has called it the most expansive, broad bill that's becoming that's coming forward onto the floor. And that is it's not a time where that should be happening. The priority should be on jobs, the economy, getting Americans back to work during this coronavirus. And that's exactly why we saw Amer- uh, the Republicans pass the Paycheck Protection Program that's helped over 30 million uh, Americans. And even when we were going through the replenishment of that fund, Democrats delayed and delayed and delayed. So they are continuing to play politics on the backs of hard work. But thankfully, thankfully, we have a president that's still looking out for our backs. But I do think voters will hold Nancy Pelosi and the Democrat caucus that continues to play politics uh, accountable in November. Well, she already has some moderate Democrats jumping ship on her. So I doubt and this definitely will not get past the Senate or the president's desk for signature. So you can probably figure this is dead on arrival. Um, but one of the things that keep on hearing, and it drives me crazy when she says uh, Trump gives handouts to Wall Street and not Main Street. Uh, but it was the Main Street American that the previous stimulus ha- helped with that $1,200 per person, and that scaled down the higher income went. So Wall Street was not supposed to get any of this money, and Trump is saying, if you're Wall Street and you got this money, give it back. And he's forcing them to pay it back. You're right. And if, if Nancy Pelosi was serious about helping Main Street Americans, then she wouldn't have delayed for weeks to replenish the Paycheck Protection Program, which was clearly helping businesses all across this country. So she continues to just blame Trump, blame Republicans, and play politics. But the reality is that she is the one that is making the coronavirus a partisan opportunity for her and her liberal caucus. Now, it's funny. They could do a virtual meeting, but then all of a sudden, because of the stimulus, they have to get back to D.C. right away. Wasn't she the one that says that the House will remain closed for the rest of the year? What has changed in the matter of just 24 hours? She wants to get her liberal priorities passed. That's what's changed. But you're right. The Senate was back at work and the House was nowhere to be found. And I think another thing that is is very alarming about this, we've had many of the more moderate Democrats, uh, like you said, jump ship. But she's having to convince more of the progressive Democrats to vote for this bill because they say it's it's not even liberal enough, which I think just shows how how far left the Democrat Party of today has gone. This, this, like we mentioned, it refers to marijuana priorities more than jobs. It talks about corporate diversity uh, boards. It's a bailout of the post office and mail-in election. There's so many liberal priorities, and it's still not liberal enough for so many of these uh, really progressive Democrats. I keep on saying, you know, Joe Biden, keep on doing what you're doing. Nancy Pelosi, keep on doing what you're doing. It's just going to be that even if we get the mail-in ballots, we're taking back seat after seat after seat. I I don't think they're ready for the wave of the average American to finally get fed up and do a, a peaceful revolution at the ballot box. You're right, and and the two special elections this week showed that. 
the uh, we flipped a seat in California, and then we held a seat in Wisconsin. I think the strong showing, the Republican enthusiasm that was there on both in both in California and in Wisconsin shows that people are responding to President Trump and Republicans' uh, leadership, and they want more of it come November. Well, Mandy, it has been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. Um, you are the RNC press secretary, so they can find you at GOP.com. And uh, I welcome you back anytime. I'm sure Gabrielle will send you back again. <laughs> I'm sure she will. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great weekend. Enjoy. Have a blessed day. Mandy Merritt, check her out, GOP.com. And we want to welcome back to the show. This guy is absolutely amazing man. Want to welcome Brigadier General Robert S. Spaulding, author of Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. Man, did you predict just about everything that's going on today, General? Well, it's, it's sad that I did, but um, at the same time, I think for the first time, the American people are seeing uh, the Chinese Communist Party for what it truly is, you know, just a terrible, terrible regime. That it is. You know, and when the virus first broke out, you know, we were hearing dribs and drabs of it. And one of the reasons why is that I had friends in the area around there uh, doing missionary work from our church. So we would get little things. And finally, some of the media started to mention it. But that was just one little area in China. It's not difficult. And then you'd hear about the entire cities being locked down and then the whole entire province being locked down. And it slowly started to build. And China was saying, oh, no, you can't do this transmit it person to person. And right behind it, the World Health Organization agrees with them and doesn't tell the world just how dangerous this is. That is how dangerous China is, that they control the message and cause so much harm, so much damage, so much death. Well, not only did they control the messaging, they actually, um, you know, knew about the, the spread of human-to-human -human transmission and then blocked domestic travel and allowed for international travel. So they had a, you know, 40,000-person block party. Uh, Xi Jinping knew what was going on. Uh, and, then they, and then by the time they closed Wuhan, uh, the Wuhan mayor said, yep, five, five million people have left. Uh, and that's how, um, you know, even in spite of the fact that the president blocked travel to and from China, uh, since we didn't block it from Europe, it was able to get in through Europe. So um, that's how it spread to the United States. That's what's caused this, uh, you know, destruction of our economy. And it was deliberately done. And, and the other reason we know it was deliberately done is because at the same time that this was going on, they were locking down PPE and masks both in China and abroad. And all of a sudden went from net exporters to net importers of PPE and masks. You know, the, we had, when we go in depth with the listeners about what China has done around just this virus alone, they will be stunned. Um, one of the things that they did do is that they've been hacking into our academic institutions and uh, medical laboratories and institutions, attempting to steal the the um, oh geez my mind just had a major brain fart here uh, the work that's being done on the virus itself to find whether or not we can get a uh, oh man did my mind just stop working 
a vaccine. I know that they're Thank doing you. this. They're Thank also you. blocking the trade of monkeys that are used for the research. Uh, most of them come from China, so they're blocking those. Of course, they're delaying the, the, the uh, uh, transfer of masks and PPE, and when they actually get here, they end up being defective. I mean, if you want to, if, if you just want to look at the kind of the, the malfeasance going on by the Chinese Communist Party, in, in spite of the fact that we're dealing with this deadly virus and people are still dying every single day, I mean, you can, you can essentially lay the, at the feet of the Chinese Communist Party over, you know, you know depending what the deaths are, tens of thousands of Amer- dead Americans. So think about 9-11, think about Pearl Harbor. This, this goes, goes way beyond that. Uh, it does. And what China tried to do is stifling by stifling the news about the virus and what was all what it was all about. Uh, they wanted to have the cure for it before they released it. So they wanted to be able to say, all right, we've got the equipment to help prevent the spread. But we've also got the cure for it. And they send the people out who have the virus across the world to spread it. They were looking at a huge money-making machine. Now you throw in the fact that now people that get the virus, some of them need double lung transplants or other organs being transplanted, but they have a manufacturing for that already because they've got the Fulong Gong prisoners, they've got the Uyghurs, they've got the political dissidents that they harvest the organs from. So they're, they're making money hand over fist. Uh, they really are, and uh, and and unfortunately, the Communist Party is uh, it's just a it's it's a bad regime, and they've done such a good job of hiding uh, their true nature. But at the same time, I think for the first time, Americans and and really people around the world are beginning to wake up. You know, the the, the Brits, uh, UK was all about Huawei and their network until coronavirus. I think that's going to change. Uh, and I think so many other countries are going to are going to be uh, looking this, to change their relationship. You know this this announcement by Taiwan that TSMC is now going to build a, a 14 billion dollar plant to manufacture uh, chips in, in Arizona is just you know one of the things that's happening as a result of coronavirus. It's really positive for the for America. You know they were they were touting this Remosar, and I had heard about that several months back about this Remosar from Gilead uh, Laboratories. So I did a little you know, finger through the walking and, on Google, and it's got ties to George Soros and Bill Gates. Now, they wanted a specific restricted patent for this, knowing full well it does go after coronaviruses. Uh, it, it is something that has a good chance of helping to cure it. So they wanted to say, all right, we're going to corner the market. But all of a sudden... The media got a hold of the fact that this drug is out there, and then all of a sudden they said, all right, we can't allow that type of a patent. You've got to be able to use this for everyone. You can't be specific about who gets it and who doesn't get it. So China has been at this for years. It's not something that just happened with this one virus. Well, I mean, they uh, they certainly have been, and they, there was, there was um, papers posted, uh, you know, uh, you know, in 2015, describing the um, uh, human infectious infectivity of a bat-related coronavirus. Um, and so, yes, they, they have been doing this research for a long time. And when uh, there's a doctor, uh, he was a, uh, I forget what his name is, Nobel Prize winner, 
uh, and he's independent, so he says, I, I, don't, I can speak whatever I want. He determined that this virus had been mutated by splicing in an RNA from the AIDS virus as well as something of malaria in it. So this was man-made virus. This was a manipulated virus. Well, I, I have not uh, seen that, um, but but definitely, regardless of what you think about where the um, virus came from, the, the pandemic was clearly started by the Chinese Communist Party. So, uh, you know, a lot of people basically say, well, you know, the, the, the virus is, um, is not man-made, that it wasn't made in the lab, that it was, it, was, it was released. You know, I think the thing that we, that we can all agree on is that uh, they definitely created the pandemic. And so it really doesn't matter where the, where the virus comes from. What matters is they essentially allowed it to spread, not just allowed it, they, they helped the spread, and then they sought to, to profit from it. Well, you know, in your book, you talk about um, the roads program that they have. And you wonder why certain countries had a higher outbreak than others. But when you look at the number of Chinese workers in areas such as Greece, Italy, England, places that have these Chinese workers brought in for the Chinese, the Communist Party's projects, you there is no wonder why it spread so fast there. And they didn't stop these workers from coming in until it was way too late. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it is um, part of the problem of globalization is, uh, you know, this free flow of people. And, you know, what happened uh, in, uh, in December is that Taiwan sent some researchers over to Wuhan and, and they didn't get the answers that they wanted. So they basically on 1 January started boarding flights from Wuhan and checking people there, and then shortly thereafter blocked any travel from the mainland to Taiwan. And so, you know, you have to wonder why, um, you know, the, the, the Taiwanese CDC didn't believe the World Health Organization and actually protected their population by acting swiftly. Uh, well, our CDC basically uh, listened to the World Health Organization, who itself was under the influence of the Chinese Communist Party and, and, and basically helping them to perpetuate this. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be changed and, and kind of reevaluated uh, in the in the aftermath aftermath of this uh, virus. Well, this means that we as a nation have to start treating China completely differently than what we have been doing over the last decades, which is what President Trump is exactly doing. One thing is by cutting them off of, you know, our global supply chain. It, it absolutely is uh, important to, um, you know, move the supply chain back home. You know, we lost over 70,000 factories, 5 million uh, manufacturing jobs when China entered the WTO. And it's time to really grow those back. And I think the president's committed to that. And, uh, and, and that's, that's good news for the American people. And, and like I said, that TSMC, uh, you know, $14 billion TSMC plant that's coming to Arizona is just one example of how, you know, the things are changing. Now, we have to start doing made in America, but we also have to make sure that if it's made in America, it's not owned by communist China. They own a lot of businesses, ports, buildings, facilities uh, here in the United States that we are completely unaware of. And what makes it even more horrific is that our, our pensions, our investments, 
a lot of them are buried in China, in their companies, which are owned by the Communist Party. They're trying to control our economy. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, the, the challenge with um, what the economy that they've built is, you know, it's an export-led economy. And so year after year, we've had a trade imbalance. Now, usually you're supposed to have a countervailing currency trade that tends to equalize uh, trade because the prices of their goods would rise after year after year of, of imbalanced trade. But because they've got a closed financial system, they actually are able to get U.S. dollars and turn around and buy up properties in the United States and buy up businesses using our, that, that trade imbalance. Now they're also using our retirement funds to do the same. So I think it is a problem. You know, the president acted to prevent a military retirement system from being invested in Chinese companies that, that uh, build weapons. But you know what? Uh, there's still other retirement systems in the United States that are continuing to invest in Chinese companies that don't file, follow audit and transparency requirements like U.S. companies. And so, essentially, a lot of investors have been burned. One of the recent ones was Luckin Coffee, which really was faking its books in China, and a lot of American investors got burned. You know, the Securities and Exchange Commission should regulate Chinese companies, but they don't uh, because I think, you know, for, for too long, they've just allowed them to get away with this. You know, the last time you were on the show, I had mentioned that when I go on places like eBay or Amazon to buy something, uh, I look to see where it's coming from. So if I see it coming from China, I'm going to go and look for someone else, and even if I pay a few dollars more. But one thing I noticed, Amazon no longer puts down the point of origin of the product you're buying. So they're no longer telling you if it's coming from Germany, England, China, Canada, or here in the United States. So I'm wondering how invested is Amazon in China? Oh, they're, they're hugely invested in China. In 2015, they, they began training uh, Chinese businesses to sell on their, uh, on their marketplace. And now, you know, you have hundreds of thousands of them that are essentially selling knockoff uh, counterfeits and, and really driving and destroying the businesses of U.S. startups that, are, that you know, have, have done the – marketing and the advertising, the engineering to develop a good product, and then all of a sudden, you know, their business is destroyed because Amazon is allowing uh, Chinese companies to come and sell their counterfeit products right on the same pages. So uh, it's a big problem. It's not just Amazon. It's the eBay. It's Shopify. All of these, you know, the FTC has not, um, has not uh, you know, regulated, just like the SEC hasn't regulated the investment environment. So this is a big this is a big problem for the federal bureaucracy. They have to regulate the Chinese companies or else they're just gonna keep doing this. Yeah, if people want to know how bad it is, uh we hear the media telling us that there's gonna be a meat shortage. Uh we're hearing about, you know, there's gonna be fresh fruit and vegetables shortage also. But this was in where did this come from, this article? Uh, it was American Action News, uh, which was showed up, saying uh, processors, including Smithfield Foods, is owned by China's WH Group Limited, uh, Brazilian-owned uh, and Tyson-owned uh, Tyson Foods, have temporarily closed about 20 U.S. meat plants as the virus infected thousands of employees. Um, so now, at this point, we're going to see 30% less meat in supermarkets by the end of May. 
Now, President Trump has ordered these places to start opening up again. And we're going to see a 20% higher cost in the meats uh, than last year. Now, catch this. While the pork supplies tightened as the number of pigs slaughtered each day plunged by 40% since mid-March, shipments of American pork to China have more than quadrupled over the same period. Smithfield, which is China's WH Group, brought bought for $4.7 billion in 2013, was the biggest U.S. exporter to China from January to March of this year. They shipped at least 13, uh, over 13 tons by sea in March alone. So here we're saying that we may not have meat on the table, but China's going to have meat on the table, U.S. meat. Well, yeah, I think that was actually a pretty smart move uh, by China and the Chinese Communist Party to do that. And it's really um, not very strategic of the United States to, to let it happen. You know, they they lose half of their um, half of their food uh, in transport to market in China because they just don't have an industrialized food supply uh, like the United States. And so they're trying to get that and, and really take advantage of their ability to have that, um, as I said, closed financial system that allows them to take uh, their export-led economy, get hard cash, and then turn around and buy our company. So it's it's time that the United States stood up. I think the president is serious when he says we're going to cut them off, uh, and, and it's certainly happening at a faster rate now. So hopefully it will continue. Well, what we have to see is the president and Congress put America first, put our, our needs and cares first before China. Uh, that is not what Congress is doing. You have so many members of Congress with investments in China, Mitch McConnell. Uh, thank you. Uh, but we, we have to get the American people to understand it has to be America first. It really does. And I think the other thing that you have is that the corporate sector and Wall Street and, you know, the think tanks and the lobbying groups in, uh, in D.C., uh, are not just on the side of the Chinese Communist Party, but on the side of corporate corporate America, who by extension and, and, and by their desire to be uh, in China are on the side of the Chinese Communist Party because they've been incentivized to be so. And so our, our political system is definitely being influenced by uh, by Chinese money, both coming through the U.S. corporate sector, but also coming directly from the Chinese Communist Party itself. Well, the other thing is we have to get the China's attention. We have to show strength and power, uh, something that previous presidents haven't done. They wanted to gut the defense uh, system, and Trump is building that up. We had today he signed into uh, the signing ceremony in the White House with the Space Force. So now that we have more power in space than China, we have to show strength. China will respect that and back down. But if we just continue to make you know, concessions, we're just going to keep on backsliding. Well, you know, and, and as I uh, found in my time in the Pentagon, you know, our, our, our national power is derived from our economy and our science and technology. It's really about, you know, our ability to manufacture, our ability to have a strong and vibrant and prosperous economy. And I think what we need to do is uh, begin to invest in our infrastructure and our manufacturing and science and technology research and STEM education and in a new secure um, 5G network uh, that's encrypted uh, and that protects American data 
uh, in American company data so that we're not constantly losing the hundreds of billions of dollars in intellectual property theft that we suffer uh, each year too. So, uh, you know, I think there's a, a lot of things in the national security strategy that talk about getting after this. You know, hopefully now with what's happened with the coronavirus, you'll see the administration accelerate its implementation of that. Well, also we have to think long term. You know, in today's society, if it's only in 40 characters, that's a, as much attention span you can get from most people. But we have to think long term. The Communist Party, when it came to power, said we have a 100-year plan. And they have been implementing it and staying on track, even accelerating it. We don't think in a 100-year plan. We think only until the next election cycle, and that's it. We have to change our mindset. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, hopefully, you know, we can we can get on this track where we understand, you know, what we need to do as a nation, we, what we need to do strategically. And, and hopefully we can come together as a people to really help that, you know, uh, become go forward so we can have, a, you know, a, a continuing democracy, a, a strong republic uh, that and, and where people can live the lives that, uh, you know, that that really uh, restores the American dream. You, know, you had mentioned education, and that's an important component because people don't realize how much our universities are under the influence of not just the Chinese, but the Muslim Brotherhood also. Um, I had a friend of mine went to go make a donation to his college, which happened to have been a Christian university, and he was surprised to find the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood in the, in the executive staff of the university, as well as in implementing policies put in place by the Muslim Brotherhood, and by the Chinese Communist Party. It's not just the Communist students. It's the Confucius Institutes that are not just in the colleges. We have them here in elementary schools. There was one out here on Hilton Head that I didn't even know about until recently. They were bragging about the kids going to that before they're going to college. The influence on our children's minds and how it's shaping policy towards China. Oh, ed education is so important. And in fact, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, after Tiananmen Massacre, started forced indoctrination at all grade levels in, in, in uh, kindergarten all the way up through university. And so, you know, they are they are using the Confucius Institutes in the United States to do uh, to do that as well. So it is it is true that, you know, um, it, it's important that we are teaching our democratic principles, our values, uh, the Constitution you know, our understanding our, our, our political system, because if we don't understand our, you know, our, our, you know, where we came from, how our system actually works, what the Constitution says, then we're, getting, we're not going to be able to defend it, and we're, we're going to lose our democracy because, you know, the world today is it's so easy to use social media and the information technology of today to influence um, young people away from, you know, these important ideas. And, and that's the goal of the Chinese Communist Party. It's also the goal of the Russians and other authoritarian regimes around the world. General, yeah, it, it, seems to be, it's, it seems to be the, um, the goal of some people here in the United States because through our education um, system, as you said, a lot of our, our children um, do not know, you know, the principles this this country was founded on. Um, they have no no knowledge of um, basically how it was formed and why we are a republic. 
um, most of them have never read the Bill of Rights. So how can you defend something you never knew you had? So I think as a nation, we need to um, educate our own and um, also try to put the brakes on a country like China when they send, you know, their people over here to be educated because a lot of times they are nothing more than intelligence gatherers, especially at the college level, you know, science and, and technology. So that, that's my point I wanted to um, add. It's so, so true, and, and, and I absolutely agree with that. You know, when you, uh, when you serve in the military and you raise your right hand and you uh, say, you know, you, you give an oath to support and defend the Constitution, that really means something. And I think, you know, having that, that understanding of what you're defending is so important. So I agree with that. Every, every American should know where we came from, what kind of system we have, what the Constitution says, you know, what the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, all of that is important for having context about what kind of country that we have and, and what kind of freedoms that we, that, and opportunities we have. You know, it's funny. I was talking to a veteran, a young guy too, and he said that his entire life he had been a Democrat and he went through the military. He remained a liberal Democrat and something changed, and all of a sudden he began to learn about our founding principles and our founding documents. And now he is a huge conservative because now he understood. He felt the patriotism in his heart, but he didn't understand it. And that's the problem. People don't understand the uniqueness of the, these United States, its history and its people, and why we are so different from the rest of the world, why we are exceptional in a good way. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a privilege and an honor to, to live in this country. You know, I remember uh, a POW uh, from, from the Vietnam War telling me, you know, every time his captor, uh, you know, in spite of the fact he was torturing him, every time he opened the door, he felt sorry for him because he wasn't born an American. It really just, it, it kind of really uh, reminds you of the, the, the privilege that we have as Americans that we live in, in, in this country. And, and so it's important that uh, that we fight for it and make sure that it, it continues to be uh, the country that uh, that we want. You know, it's funny because it, that's very poignant because I, at one point, I owned a travel agency, so I got to travel all over the world. And there were places that I went that I thanked God that I was born here. And then later on, as a New York City police officer, running into people from outside of the United States and hearing their stories, uh, and every single time, I thank God that I was here in this free nation. And people don't understand that. You know, we have a disposable uh, society that, you know, if it's not done in just a few seconds or, you know, paper plate rather than going washing a plate. They don't understand that these things don't exist outside the United States as freely as it does here. Now, you know, and that's really one of the things that you find out when you live overseas. You know, it, it really gives you an appreciation of, of the United States, and it really is a tremendous country and, and a tremendous privilege to live here. You know, it's funny because the story I love to tell you know, people is that I was in uh, Colombia, uh, and I had been – it was a time where it wasn't as free as it is at, at all, and we were in a private club. And into the club came two soldiers with machine guns, and they went from table to table with the guns in your face, 
you know, checking IDs, asking who you were, why you were there. And I had a scotch in front of me, and the gun came around to my face. I just looked at the soldier, took a sip of my scotch, and said, if I'm going to go, at least I'm going to finish the drink first. <laughs> you know, they don't understand that this, that this exists. It really does exist out there. Yes, definitely. And, uh, and uh, you know, that it, it's experiences like that that just remind you. <laughs> Reminds you of how, how blessed we are. Oh, you can imagine this 20-something little thing there sitting there with the scotch in front. Says, well, if I'm going to go, I'm finishing this drink, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, but I, <laughs> hey, listen, I paid money for it. May as well, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Curtis is trying to get our next guest in on the phone. So I don't know if you can hang out for a few more minutes, uh, but – you know, one of the things that, uh, thank God that we do have Trump in office at this time, uh, is one of the things he's been doing is rebuilding our missile power. And this is something that we heard military officials say is that, you know, we gave up so much in that missile agreement with uh, Russia, where they never destroyed theirs, we did. It was time for us to rebuild. And now anything that's going to occur is going to be long range. We didn't have enough. He's starting to rebuild that. It is so important, you know, um, when I was in the Pentagon in 2014, and we really started looking at this and, and realized that we had made ourselves so vulnerable in the Indo-Pacific because we had, we had essentially allowed, um, you know, the Chinese to build thousands of these missiles. And because we were a, a member of the INF Treaty, we had, um, we had failed to do so. And, of course, uh, and then you find out that the Russians are cheating on it anyway. And, you know, so it was really... It was a large, It was a hard fight to to, to come out of that because everybody uh, believed it was a very successful treaty. But at, at the at the end of the day, the president made the right decision and and really brought us out of it. So now we can build missiles that really uh, deter con- conflict in the Indo Pacific because uh, the Chinese really have a, a dominance in that in that weapon system. Well. General, it has been a pleasure. People can find you. You're at the Hudson Institute, and your book they can get from your website. The book is called Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. God bless you, uh, General, for all the hard work you do. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Take care, General. Enjoy your sleep. Thank you. All right. right. Bye-bye. We've got our next victim victim up on the line, a fellow New Yorker, a fellow Long Islander, uh, Dr. Dean Hart. Good afternoon, Dr. Hart. How are you doing today? Oh, great. It's warming up here finally. (laughs) I'm down here. It's going up to the 80s. (laughs) I love the South. (laughs) New York, (laughs) a nice place to be out of. Oh man, you know we we started off the show with a dedication to a fallen fallen heroes, and the last several shows I did it was first to law enforcement that died from COVID. Then it was to the next show was for um, the medical staff that were treating the victims that have passed from COVID, and today's was to the firefighters. And after I finished the dedication, I had pulled up an article about the New York City Health Commissioner, um, Ox, Ox, Iris. Barbat and her attitude towards my fellow NYPD cops. I swear, if she had been standing in front of me when she said what she said, that she doesn't give a rat's ass about the cops, I would have decked her. This, this is what you've got out of New York City? Really? Well, that's a unique place. 
<laughs> to say the least, it's not the New York City of Giuliani, that's for sure. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Yeah, for better and worse. <laughs> Everything that Mayor de Blasio has done and Governor Cuomo has done has been actually the exact opposite of what's necessary to attack this virus and prevent the spread. You know, I, I was, I'm sitting here in my comfortable Archie Bunker chair here in South Carolina, and my heart goes out to those men and women out there on the front line having to deal with this outbreak. Well, uh, what the governor did, the, the, de Blasio has little power over the governor. The governor is the king of the castle. And... Really, what he had to do at first was because it looked like we were going to get our medical facilities overwhelmed with with uh, diseased people. It was getting out of control really quick. Uh, there is something unique about New York City with elevators to the 30th floor. You get out and somebody gets in with a very contagious disease, as the novel coronavirus is. And it's kind of, there are great questions without a semblance of a total paucity of answers. So we're all playing it by the seat of our pants. Absolutely. And it is a complete petri dish for anything like the coronavirus and the spreading of the subway systems. And what gets me is, is that, they said, all right, we're going to sanitize the subway cars between whatever time in the morning to whatever time in the morning. But as soon as they're done sanitizing it, they let the homeless in there for free, who then <laughs> turn around and put the virus back in the very same. So, you know, does it make any sense to you? Well, the homeless are unique. They can't really wash their hands so easily, and that's one of the main things. Every If I hear, wash your hands to prevent this again, I, I'll get sick. But the thing is that uh, washing your hands is a fundamental public health uh, activity, and the homeless are particularly vulnerable to be con- contaminated by this coronavirus because they're close together, sleeping on each other. They have no way for sanitation and cleanliness. So it would not be good to be a homeless person. And the subway, before there was ever a thought of a coronavirus, was a place where you'd always see people sleeping that were homeless, and you just have the sadness in your heart what went wrong in their life. But yet... There's, again, no answer to this problem. It is a huge problem. And uh, now with COVID, it's even a bigger problem because they can get people that are hardworking people sick much more easily with this sleeping on the subway train. Well, if anyone has never been to New York City, uh, the homeless are very unique. And it could be any number of any reasons why a person is homeless on the street. But you see, what you see most of the time would be those with some sort of a mental illness. And you can be walking down the street, not minding anyone else's business but your own, and all of a sudden be uh, accosted by a homeless person, whether it's verbally or physically. And, you know, it's... it's, uh, a situation where at one point under Giuliani, you know, we as police officers were able to go and then pick the 
homeless person up off the street, bring them to a shelter or to a medical facility. But now it's a hands-off approach. You know, leave them alone, which is the, the worst thing that you could possibly do. These people need help. And whether it's voluntary or not, you have to be able to give it to them. Yeah, absolutely. My father, as he'd walk down, he'd say, that guy could have been a CEO of IBM as far as, you know, but this is a mental dilemma, and the guy just couldn't handle his very responsible position in society. And we do have an obligation to help out those that are ill. Uh, we got to give them some compassion, compassion, mercy, and yes, I agree with you that somehow we have to try to treat these people and not just leave them sick on the street. Precisely. You know, some of it may be from drug abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic abuse, uh, fleeing from a you know awful situation with no place to go. But then again, there were shelters for people of domestic abuse. They wouldn't know about it, but then as a cop, you would go, all right, fine, you're in this situation. Let me take you to the shelter. Uh, but we're not, they're not allowed to do that anymore. And my heart breaks for my brethren out there in blue fighting a really hard uh, job. And then you have the commissioner of health turning around saying, I don't give a rat's ass about cops and denying them you know, the, the personal protection equipment they so desperately need. Well, yes, I have witnessed in Central Park everybody's jogging and wearing face masks, and then the police officers are chatting around as if they're immune to it in a group. Now, it is a horror to think that a first responder of that noble profession would be uh, unable to get a mask, a face mask, to protect themselves. And, you know, gloves are also should be available to all first responders. But what happened was we had this emergency stockpile that was indeed planned for states when it needed it. And President Obama depleted it during the swine flu epidemic. Then President Trump never opened the cupboard until it was too late, and he found nothing in there. So Democrats and Republicans left these police officers and hospital workers and doctors and a myriad of professions or uh, um, jobs defenseless because we didn't even have simple face masks. I'm not even sure we still have good quality face masks for those that are absolutely on the front lines, police officers, numero uno, too. Yeah. Now, you wrote an interesting article uh, last month titled, A Unified Media Message is Key to Winning the Battle Against COVID-19. Uh, but we don't have a unified message. I mean, Dr. Fauci gets up there and testifies and says one thing, and then the next person comes around and says something different. We can't even get a unified message out of the administration. Well, if you have politicians telling the citizens what's right and wrong and everything, you'll never get a unified message. I've never seen people more self-serving than the political class and cast of our government. I don't care if it's Republican, Democrat, Conservative, Libertarian. I uh, mean, I favor Libertarians because the government is uh, more uh, unskilled. Now, you get some scientists there. Fauci's worried about losing his 
don't know if he's worried about losing his job, but he gets berated by Trump when he speaks things. But when you hear Fauci speak, he's as close to facts as there are. We know this virus is extremely contagious. We know that it, it has a high rate of mortality compared to the flu, at least, high, much higher rate of mortality. So we have those two facts. Short of that, we have no facts. A vaccine could take between, it should take at least a year to be safe, and it could never happen or take 30 years because that's the nature of creating a vaccine. We have no treatment, nor does it look very promising that we're going to have a treatment until you're really, really sick, and then you probably have a 50-50 chance of dying. These are not things politicians want to state, but scientists like myself can just tell you the science. The science is contagious, and we don't have a solution except we do. The first thing is I don't think everybody should be isolated and quarantined. We need the tests. We have the ability to test people. Although there's flaws in the test, science will generate tests to know if you had COVID and may have an immunity to the disease going forward so you don't have to worry so much, or it, the test will show that you never had it and have no immunity, and then you got to really worry when you go out, but then you can use autonomy and decide, should I go out or not? It's a personal decision, if you have the facts. We don't have the good tests yet. We have a limited amount of some of the tests. Some of the tests are good, some aren't, which leaves you shrugging your shoulders, even as a scientist. I know that uh, ELISA-based tests are the most accurate, but they're the most cumbersome, time-consuming, and technical uh, tests. But the ELISA is what should be used for your immunoglobulins. And um, a mask, a mask, now, I like the libertarian philosophy, but a mask right now during this pandemic, at least in my area, I would be comfortable saying yes we got to wear a mask because right now there are too many unknowns and the mask it's not going to hurt and it very probably will help um social distancing is obvious we we all as citizens know the closer you are to somebody that, that that's speaking coughing sneezing at you the closer you are the more likely you are to get sick there's certain common sense things. I'd like to have uh, Cuomo and de Blasio say, if a public place is open, when you walk in and you walk out, you have to be able to walk, have a hand sanitizer. That would be a beautiful thing. Hand sanitizers when you walk in and walk out of a business establishment would be a beautiful thing, and it certainly would help the situation. Nothing's going to cure it short of the vaccine and the cure medically, but what's happening now is instead of the doctors and the medical approach, I see more of the fear and the politicians disagreeing with everything, and then you've got liberal channels and conservative channels disagreeing with each other, and you're just making the citizens all fearful. The pandemic ends when a vaccine or a cure is, occurs, but living with this, which is what we must 
do right now. Scientifically, we must live with it or just give away everything we lived a lifetime and our ancestors lived a lifetime for. Give it away? No. We have to go out using intelligence and and really understand the facts, but everybody's getting different facts and there's such poor communication that it's incredible and that's a problem because the fear ends the lack of fear ends a pandemic, as does the vaccine. But we don't have the medical wherewithal to end it conclusively. So we have to do it psychosocially, and we have to stop fighting within the country to end the fear that everybody has on the right, the left, the middle. Everybody's so fearful. Me, I don't fear it. I understand it. I make my autonomous decisions, but most people don't have a myriad of scientific and bioethical degrees and experience of 60-something years. So I feel for this. I know what's right for me, and autonomy must guide us, but you can't be autonomous without the facts. And the facts change from channel to channel, from Democrat to Republican. <laughs> it's, I feel sorry for it. Well, you know, in my research over the last few shows, I came across a couple of different things. Uh, and one is, is that researchers have discovered a strong correlation between vitamin D deficiency and mortality rates from the, cor- the coronavirus. Uh, the research team led by Northwestern University analyzed data from hospitals and clinics across China, France, Germany, Italy, Iran, South Korea, Spain, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom and the United States. And patients from countries with high COVID-19 mortality rates, such as Italy, Spain, and the United Kingdom, had lower levels of vitamin D. So one thing we could be looking at is our diet. Well, diet, obesity, and cardiovascular is strongly associated with the death from COVID, as nobody would be surprised that obese, high blood pressure patients that are also over 60 or 65. But getting to the vitamins, there really is a very big problem proving vitamins work to solve diseases. So I'm not a vitamin fanatic. On the other hand, every morning I take vitamin D3, not D, but D3, it works better. And I do take vitamin D3 because there's a myriad of science behind D3 before COVID that it's great for your immune system and your bones and this and that. So I figured there was no, it's an autonomous decision. There's no harm. There could be benefit. So it's a bioethical thing that I saw to myself D3. So would I recommend D3 to cure COVID or to prevent COVID? That's a stretch. Do I like taking vitamin D? I don't like taking any pills, but (laughs) taking vitamin D3, I've decided, is good for the human body. But I wouldn't say more than that because I'm not a vitamin freak. I know people that take too many vitamins. Some can be harmful to you. People have overdosed from the vitamin A, and they turn into orange colored by juicing carrots like crazy. So vitamins are great, maybe, and are harmless for certain vitamins, and other vitamins can make you very sick. So vitamins D3 in particular, since you brought it up, my vote is thumbs up on vitamin D3, as long as you take it a reasonable amount. I wouldn't take 5,000 milligrams, but I know my 
general practitioner does. Um, but vitamin D3 is fine. It not, it's, not har- it's relatively, I believe, harmless to my body, and I've been taking it for half a dozen or a dozen years because the research supports vitamin D3. Now, there are other vitamins that you can't just go crazy with vitamins. I agree. I agree. Now, this is this is breaking today, um, and it's supposed to be an exclusive breakthrough. A California-based pharmaceutical, a biopharmaceutical comp- company, claims to have discovered an antibody that could shield the human body from the coronavirus and flush it out of a person's system within four days. They're announcing this sometime this afternoon. Probably have already done it. Sorrento Therapeutics will announce today that the ST. I-1499 antibody, which the San Diego company said can provide 100% inhibition of COVID-19, adding that a treatment could be available months before a vaccine hits the market. Uh, Dr. Henry Jai is the founder and CEO of Sorrento Therapeutics. He stated that we have the neutralizing antibody in your body. You don't need the social distancing. You could open up a society without fear. If this is true, this is amazing. I couldn't agree more. That's in the vaccine category. If you have a cure, a treatment that prevents COVID or solves the problem when you get sick. But the thing is, you have a biopharmaceutical company that may be publicly traded, and that he makes billions maybe, and then you got to take it with a grain of salt, even if he's not public, this company is not publicly traded, the person wants venture capital. So again, you have self-serving interests like the politicians, like the newspapers, like the news on the radio and TV. Uh, you got to isolate the self-serving interest. If it was that simple, everybody would do it <laughs> because we know we want a vaccine or a cure, and it sounds like he's proposed he has it. But he's not the first I've heard on TV, radio, or in the newspapers, or on the Internet that proposed a cure. There's no question you can, you can theorize how to solve this dilemma, but some medicines that you take have had can have unintended consequences. Bioethically, we have to make sure we don't make a person sicker than they would have gotten if they, by coincidence, did get the COVID-19 uh, virus. So, so we need scientists to go by the scientific method as quick as possible. But this guy, you've heard this kind of news before. I think there's a company, Moderna, with this messenger RNA that keeps on saying, oh, a few months, we'll have it out, and we're stage three. But the thing is, no vaccines ever come out of messenger RNA. Theoretically, it's a beautiful thing. And scientifically, in class, when you take a biochemistry class, you, you see how it could work. The antigen-antibody reaction could work. But the proof is in a vaccine or a treatment that doesn't have unintended consequences and works. And right now we have no vaccine and we have no cure. And will science expeditiously work with all the scientific stuff going on? We sequence the human genome in our lifetime. We've done all these miraculous things compared to generations before. We're resting on science to do a miraculous thing with the COVID. And I 
couldn't vote more for science to march on. I am part of the scientific community, not the business community. I I hope the science perseveres and wins quick than slow. But the scientific method, when I first started my first graduate degree, it was in microbiology, and I had this whole plan about how I was going to do my thesis and blah, blah, blah. The first thing the teacher told me was, you can't put a time clock on science. So my thesis advisor made that statement, and I was 20 one or something or something like that and he says you can't put a time clock on science and i realized he's absolutely right so it could come out a or b good or bad we have to make sure it's safe so people that come out with this stuff that are in the business world and ceos and presidents that make money by inspiring confidence in their product is all the capitalist way and i'm a capitalist for sure i'm not a communist so let him blow his horn but let the citizens beware if they rest on one business person or another, we have to have a strategy. We, we, we're we not fearing false hopes, and we don't have all this hypocrisy, and we understand our risk and our reward. What we do with our body and what can happen, we don't even have the proper statistics. We don't even know if you get cured for COVID or you're immune for a day or a lifetime. Uh, it, it, clearly, we have some immunity once we're cured. I personally had it about three months ago, COVID. It didn't affect me that bad. I had a fever, three days, a couple of lethargy. Now I donate my plasma because the theory that the, plas- the immunoglobulins in your plasma helps the sick people. So I've been donating my plasma with the theory. I'm not sure that it helps the sick people, but I am sure the risk-reward ratio of me donating my plasma and my immunoglobulins, it's not going to hurt me. It done in a reasonable way. It's not going to hurt me, and it could help somebody so I can do that and feel good that maybe I'm helping the situation. However, there's so many unanswered questions, and you know what? There will be till the day science and humanity goes thousands of years in the future. There'll still be unanswered questions, but we will live comfortably with them, as opposed to right now we live uncomfortably because of a paucity of answers and dueling uh, statements. Well, now, i got a question for you, because now we have an incident of these kids that are coming down with a, a form of COVID. They seem to have had it in their system, but now they're coming out with rashes, inflammation, and about a dozen kids have died. Most of them all centered around the New York City area. You know, urban areas have a unique environment to allow these things to grow. But now why all of a sudden this version of the virus is it mutating on us? Well, all virus mutate every time. There's 30 kilobytes of base pairs in a virus. It mutates within a body every other second. When it splits up, you're going to get some mutations. Most mutations are deadly to the virus, and they, they... kick off when they mutate. Uh, There are mutations, they say, in China's one version that's less deadly and less contagious than the version we have here that came from Europe. So mutation happens, but again, that will 
the sound is fearful, but mutations occur, and the vast majority are good for us because the virus dies. But mutations are one thing. The children thing is a whole other can of worms. Now, in this country, in this world, we lose 5,000 people to COVID approximately every day. Now, out of the 5,000, will one, two, ten be children? Yes. The most horrific thing a parent could ever do is bury a child. What a horrible life experience that would be. But with children, the rate of this, it looks like it's an immunological infection that the immune system goes crazy in kids even after they've killed the virus. And the immune system after the virus is dead, it can still attack your own organs. So that's one thing. Another thing that we've noticed with these children, some of them have comorbidities. They have underlying medical conditions that nobody noticed. And children just die from one guy died from a heart arrhythmia, the genetic heart arrhythmia type of thing. And the child would have died anyway. But now they test them for COVID, and you can't figure out if, if it's COVID or not. The big deal is that when you're a parent, you don't live in fear of your child dying. The vast majority of children are either slightly symptomatic or completely asymptomatic. The biggest fear for a child is they're going to kill your grandpa and your grandmother. They're not popping off left and right with this Kawasaki-like disease. Yes, it's a horror. Any one child dies. And will one child out of 5,000 deaths occur? For sure. Uh, it just is the way science and medicine and clinical science works. It's going to happen, unfortunately. But the rate of death in children is enormously low. And it's worth researching these few children that do succumb maybe to COVID, maybe not. We're not positive about it, but it would seem there's a handful of children that do die from COVID. But there's thousands and thousands of other people that are dying at the same time. So you've got to have a realistic uh, expectations here that your child is not going to go out there, get COVID, and have this Kawasaki-like disease in your heart be attacked by your immune system with your cardiovascular system crapping out on you because the immune system doesn't realize what it's doing. It's rare, very rare. Well, uh, Dr. Dean Hart, um, where can people find you? Well, I have a page, deanhartscientist.com. Well, I thank you for the hard work you're doing on explaining this virus and how people uh, can protect themselves a little bit better. I'm one of those, I, I don't like wearing the mask because I normally just keep a safe distance. But if someone starts to come within that distance, I just <laughs> let them know, excuse me, please. <laughs> um, but I have hand sanitizer. I've got two in each of the, my cars. I have it in my purse. And matter of fact, when I have a delivery person come, I give them a, a bottle because I made, I don't know, about 40 bottles uh, before everyone went crazy and the stores didn't have the alcohol or anything. I was, I was well ahead of the curve there. And I still have a cabinet full of it. So that's one of the things I do. Well, I like the idea 
if you're within six feet, to wear a mask. And I like the freedom. Probably it makes sense. If you're going to be jogging in Central Park, you don't wear a mask. Me, I my glasses fog up when I wear a mask. But I understand when I'm in the supermarket, my fellow citizens will get all uptight. Even if I'm six feet away or more, they'll get uptight while I'm shopping if I don't wear a mask. And it's I can understand that. And I can have somebody else's back that way i figured out you fold a little, a little tissue above the mask it helps with the fogging of your glasses but it's a pain in the butt to wear a mask for sure but we're in unique times now now as a libertarian i would say we shouldn't be forced to wear a mask but as a citizen there are certain things you have to do for your fellow citizen to prevent harm and i, I wear a mask I'd, if I'm six feet or more away, I do not wear a mask. But if I'm in the supermarket and there's nobody for six feet, I'll wear a mask. There are certain times where you don't want to make your fellow citizen uptight. And we don't know if you're at the supermarket, for example. I'll wear the mask even if nobody's in the aisle. I'll wear it because if I'm speaking on my cell phone or sneezing, I know I'm not contagious because I already had it three months ago. But in general, the citizen down the hallway or the worker of the supermarket doesn't know exactly the, the, the there's more fear. And, and, and to comfort your fellow human beings, I think we got a little bit of responsibility to our fellow human beings when it comes to this ridiculous, fearful situation. But uh, I don't like wearing a mask, and but I want to get the heck out of this house, this quarantine thing. But like you said, in New York City, it's like an incubator. It's like a Petri dish, sort of like a cruise. You, you, you use an elevator. When the person gets out, and we believe probably this is aerosolized virus. So when you get out of the elevator, even if you went in it alone, which is the rules in New York City, at least in the building I got, <clears throat> When you go into an elevator, you go solo, but when you get out, another person's getting in with quickly. There's a very distinct probability the virus still is in the air of the elevator because we know with the measles it stays for like hours aerosolized. Here we don't know yet the fine details. So you got to go to your home. Uh, so we should wear a mask. The glove is a different story. Gloves are uh, fraught with peril for a different reason. If you know what you're doing with a glove and you change it all day, a glove will help. But if you wear one glove all day long, <laughs> you have a false, a very false sense of security and you probably have a glove contaminated with COVID. <laughs> and there's no point if you're not going to change it regularly like a doctor does. Well, Dr. Hart, it has been a pleasure having you on here. I want to thank you very much for joining us, and we'll be speaking with you again. I'll look forward to it. All right. Thank you very much. Let's bring on our next guest, and I just I just stole him away from uh, my co-host who was talking to him. We'll bring on to the show Bill Whittle. Welcome to the zoo, Bill. Good to be back. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. No, it's a little nutty out there, isn't it? It's good to be here. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's all in the air. I mean, we started off the show where, for some reason, I had a problem with the sound. Uh, it's been like downhill all day, yeah. and you know I how that a, goes. Yeah, <laughs> I was having a hard time with Skype myself, so I just had to give you a call on the landline. But um, the whole world's going a little nutty out there, and it's getting worse well, every day. I'm glad you said you had a problem with Skype because that was the problem I had with the start of the show. I had called in using Skype, and for some reason, everyone heard one side of the conversation but not the other, and that's not fun. No, talking it's about not. Hearing, <laughs> talking about hearing one side of the conversation, well, we're finally hearing the other side dealing with General Flynn. What's coming out is amazing. Yeah, and um, this story may actually reach... Um, a big enough size so that the mainstream media just can't ignore it. I mean, once once a story gets to the point where where people are talking about it, they they almost have to cover it, even if they cover it in a slanted way. I, I have to tell you, I didn't think I'd live to see um, this uh, cover up start to unravel. But every single hour, it seems, you know, the uh, the Obama administration and and the people involved in this uh, slow motion three year attempted coup. There seems to be more and more um, solid evidence, you know, implicating these people in, in behaviors that would have made Richard Nixon and Watergate just, you know, blush from uh, just the sheer timidity of what they did. Yeah, if you remember back when Watergate was unraveling, um, it was on Don Imus' show. He used to play the song all the time, Haldeman, Earlman, Mitchell, and Dean. I'm just wondering why someone has to turned around and come out with something with uh, Mueller and Comey and Strzok and McCabe. (laughs) But you notice it's it's the same players. Yeah, and, uh, well, it's obviously, it's the same kind of dynamic, but the the teams are completely different. Uh, Democratic liberal reporters won after Richard Nixon, um, you know, relentlessly. Uh, no one even bothered to look into this as far as uh, Obama's culpability in it and, and Biden's and, and Hillary's and all the rest of it, because if you're a Democratic uh, politician, you can do pretty much anything you want to. Uh, so the fact that the story's coming out, it just alone is a credit, I think, just to the Internet and alternate news sources like yours and, 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 and the work I do. It's it's incredibly encouraging to me because I have to tell you, I know like most Americans uh, – I, I was, and I still on the, on the wire about this, but really starting to lose faith in the entire idea of the rule of law, and the entire idea that uh, people could be punished for for felonious activities, you know, no matter how highly placed they were. Excuse me, I was just taking a sip of water. No. Uh, when I, when I listen to the stories coming out about Flynn and the people behind it. Uh, I think back to what happened, what is happening still with Bob Gates, what has happened with Manafort, uh, what has happened with Jerome Corsi, uh, with the Roger Stone. And you hear story after story. And when you turn around and go back to the DOJ, it comes back to Mueller and Comey and McCabe mm-hmm. and Strzok. And it comes back to the abuse of laws, of illegal use of the FISA court in almost every single instance, and in the attempt to do a coup. It, that's exactly what it is. And um, there's so many different uh, motivations in there for these people. I think the best thing I ever heard was, uh, this was during uh, the Obama years, 
was that somebody once, uh, the conservative once said that these people are governing like they're never going to lose an election again, that they're doing so much um, that is just clearly illegal, the weaponizing of the IRS against conservative groups and uh, and all of this. And, and, you know, when you get right down to it, they they had um, they had the the real genius to understand that if you if you could control the Justice Department, then everything else would would fall into place. So long as you had press, uh, when I say press coverage, I mean the cloak of invisibility. You know that they weren't going to do any stories about anybody, especially Barack Obama, that might be um, negative to to liberals. So if you could if you could corrupt the the Justice Department, then it didn't matter whether or not anybody tried to blow the whistle on anything that was happening in the IRS or the FBI or whatever. If the Justice Department is in your pocket and the Attorney General is in your pocket, you just simply choose not to um, prosecute. And I have to tell you, uh, I have some uh, friends in uh, in the FBI, uh, and they were in uh, in a field office watching uh, Comey when he, when he came out and, and did that little press conference where he talked about the results of the Hillary Clinton email server. And as he went on and on and on for 40 minutes, listing all of the things that she had done, they were just cheering and cheering. You know, these are just these are field agents, and they're like, "Oh my God, it's really happening!" And then he says, "But I don't think uh, we we're not recommending that anybody prosecute this. We don't think any reasonable prosecutor would take the case." And and they just kind of, you know, they threw up their hands. They started yelling stuff at the TV, and 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 this kind of high level uh, corruption is not only bad for the country, needless to say, but it tarnishes uh, the entire uh, FBI, uh, just the enormous majority of whom are, are lifelong um, patriots who have you know, who've dedicated their life to keeping Americans safe and have watched this. And, and this, this friend of mine who was in the FBI said that James Comey has done more damage to the FBI than the KGB did in, in 70 years. And I, I think he's absolutely right. I, I absolutely agree too, because uh, now you no longer have field agents uh, that are guys that were recruited out of law enforcement or military. You've got pencil pushing attorneys, yep. and they're more concerned about manipulating the law, the, the law, than about actually doing real case work, doing real police work, which is what the FBI is supposed to be doing. That's right. And um, and the natural friends, conservatives are, are sort of the natural allies of the FBI. Uh, conservatives tend to be uh, patriots. And they tend to be, you know, you know a lot more, uh, you know, amenable to law enforcement and so on. And and most of us, you know, grow up, remember, uh, grew up remembering, uh, you know, shows like the FBI on TV, you know, with Ephraim Zemblis, uh, Ephraim Zemblis Jr. And, and the untouchables and, and the idea that this that this organization, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was composed of incorruptible uh, agents who were only interested in um, in in finding uh, crime and and prosecuting it. Uh, it the, the degree to which that reputation has been damaged is is almost immeasurable. And and not only is it damaged, but it's damaged among the people that were supporters of the FBI. The left always hated the FBI because the FBI was always onto their you know their communist tricks, but but for conservatives to have been weaponized, have the FBI weaponized against conservatives is uh, conservatives and and conservatives cause is is doubly disastrous for them. Bill, that I agree. You know. Go ahead, Curtis. I, I would just like to add that you're right. Um, growing up, 
on TV, the theme was law and order. Even mm-hmm. going back to shows like Gunsmoke and The sure, Law Man. Sure. Yep. You know, it's, today it's just, I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do with the image that um, Hollywood's put out um, when it comes to law enforcement, which is basically negative, just like their their um, films about the military. And people, they look at that and they take it to heart. And, and it, I'm sure it's true in some cases, but it's less than maybe two or maybe one percent, you know, the rotten apples in um, law enforcement or the military. But when you see it constantly on TV and in the movie theaters, you think it's a larger problem than it is. Than it is. So I, I think media has, you know, some um, some blame in the way we perceive law enforcement and you know our military. I think that's a, I think that's such an important point, and you can actually kind of put a pin into where it started to happen too. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Um, I can't remember if that was 69 or 70, some, right in the early 70s, late 60s. So Bonnie and Clyde, yeah, and, and Faye Dunaway. So you've, got, so you've got these two murderers, basically, historical murderers, bank robbers and murderers. They just went down and gunned down a lot of people. And you cast this incredibly good-looking guy, this incredibly good-looking woman, and you romanticize them and make them into rebels. And, you, and all the police are squares or corrupt or, or, or vicious or sadistic. And then when they get gunned down in the end, which was just justice, they make it look like it's, like it's you know, some kind of incredible tragedy that befell these two kind of awesome people. And, and then you go to a, another film like Easy Rider where um, – you know, now you've got the guys who are the, on the motorcycle gangs. They're the good guys, and the mm-hmm. police are the bad guys. And and once you start down that road, you you got it exactly right. You you start you start to convince the population uh, that they that they cannot trust uh, law enforcement uh, or the military, and that is a form of hypnosis. You know, I, I like to talk about this a lot just because it's so important. I often go when I do a speaking event, I'll ask anybody if they've ever been hypnotized and usually two or three people in the room have raised their hands and I'll say, no, you actually all of you have been hypnotized and you've been hypnotized thousands of times. Uh, When you go to a a movie, we all remember going to movies, don't we, back in the old days? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, even a drive through yeah, I, I, I'm going back to those theaters when those things open. But anyway, let's say you're watching a uh, vampire movie or something, uh, a Dracula film, and and it's it's the middle of the afternoon on Saturday, and you're at the matinee, and it's four o'clock, and the sun's out, and you're drinking a coke, and you got popcorn there, uh, but you're watching this movie, and then Dracula comes out from behind one of these columns in the dungeon, and you just leap out of your seat. And you know there's no such thing as vampires, and you know you're not in a dungeon, and you know it's not 1822. You know all these things. But the reason, the reason you jump is because you have lowered all of your rational uh, abilities. You've done something, what we in the business call uh, the willing suspension of disbelief. You've basically gone into the movie theater and said, all right, uh, I'm going to give you two hours of my time, and I'm going to let you convince me. Uh, there are such things as vampires, and, and we'll both have some fun. But the problem is is that it happens whenever you watch any kind of a movie, any kind of a TV show, and this stuff goes directly into your brainstem. And the reason I can prove that you've been hypnotized is I know for a fact you've both been hypnotized, and the way I can prove it is I'm going to start a sentence, and, and you're going to finish it for me. Ready? Here we go. 
Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. Superman. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's plane. It's Superman. Yeah, so you didn't have to go to a website and try to remember <laughs> what that meant. You didn't have to go, what was that, and who were we talking about? Was that uh, was that Perry Mason who used to No, you know the end of that sentence because you heard it hundreds, if not thousands of times. And so in your mind, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman, is in your head, and so is everything that Superman represents. All of his moral goodness, all of his, his vast power that's constrained by his own virtue, all of the um, patriotism, all of that went into your head when you were watching Superman. And now, if you do nothing but watch Family Guy or, or, or uh, any of these movies that make uh, law enforcement or the military into the villains, you don't even realize it, but it's, it is hypnotizing you. You've allowed it to hypnotize you, and it is doing enormous damage uh, to this country. Well, I've said the same exact thing for a long time because Hollywood and all entertainment industry has been brainwashing America for a long, long time. It's to the point where now adults are stupid and kids know better. And yes. now the permissiveness and the immorality that you see in all these shows, uh, it's, it's impossible. Uh, my poor mom is is with us right now, and she's going to be 88 in July, and she's watching the TV. She's like, this stuff is garbage. And it's she's garbage. right. You don't find decent, good entertainment. Um, you don't find comedy shows or variety shows or talk shows like you used to have with Johnny Carson. Uh, Carol Burnett, um, things like that. Good, healthy fun that doesn't hurt anyone anymore. You don't see it out there. No, and it wasn't politicized either. I mean, I don't think anybody, I mean, I watched Johnny Carson for a number of years uh, when I was uh, quite a bit younger, but um, I have no idea whether Johnny Carson was a Republican or a Democrat. He never talked politics, ever, ever. He would have political figures on the show, but he never talked politics. And and that's why that show was for everybody. And as the audiences continue to shrink, what there's a term I think a, a writer named Sarah Hoyt coined. Uh, they say uh, roll left and die. So as their audience gets smaller and smaller, they tend to get more and more aggressively left wing, in order to attract like the rabid uh, fans who who really love to hear that kind of echo chamber stuff. But the idea that that I mean Johnny Carson or or Jay Leno even you didn't you didn't know what their personal politics were but now you've got Steve Colbert you've got um you've got Jimmy Kimmel uh all of these guys they're they're just openly constantly they're not they're not making fun of the president they're just they're just relentlessly attacking him and and half of the country's tuned out and and so we tend to get further and further apart in terms of not having any sort of shared experiences. It used to be that if you were a Republican or a Democrat, you, you both knew what, what Johnny Carson had to say last night, or maybe um, you could both talk about the, the Green Bay Packers and not have to talk about whether or not somebody taking a knee was appropriate or not. This politics has gotten involved in every aspect of our lives now. And, um, and one of the few benefits of this uh, pandemic has been, I think, for people to realize that, well, you know, there are there are more important things than that. No one's really talking about transgendered bathrooms right at this particular moment. Um, there are bigger fish to fry out there right now. 
That's true. And they began to politicize entertainment with Archie Bunker, where they thought they would really make good fun out of conservatives. And boy, did that backfire on them big time. And it always realized that we have the... We have the ability to laugh at ourselves. And my dad and I would sit down and watch the, the All in the Family and just have a great old time. I mean, I have my own Archie Bunker chair in the living room, and sometimes I watch the stupidity coming out of Pelosi, and I nearly fall out of it laughing. But, you know, well, it's interesting. That's you got it right, though. You got it exactly right. It, it backfired. Um, and it backfired real bad. Uh, for those of you that remember, it's not going to be a problem for you if you're you're younger. The, it was a movie, about, uh, a TV show, great TV show, about um, a, a young liberal and um, marries into this conservative's house and marries his daughter. Uh, Archie's the conservative, and Mike Stivic is the is the liberal. And and basically, the reason that Norman Lear made the TV show was because he was going to be speaking. He was a he was and remained an enormous, huge liberal. And the reason he wanted to do the show was because he wanted to talk to mainstream America, and he wanted to talk to them through the voice of Mike Stivic. And so, and so he had this character, Mike Stivic, constantly making these liberal pronouncements, and he wrote Archie Bunker to be this bigot and this idiot. And nevertheless, the country fell in love with Archie Bunker, and I think the reason they fell in love with Archie Bunker is because they could not, no matter how hard they tried, you could not get away from the simple fact that Archie Bunker is up at 5.30 in the morning and going to work on a loading dock in Queens, and he works like a slave all day. His son-in-law sleeps until 2 in the afternoon. Archie Bunker comes home after a hard day of paying all the bills and all the food and all the rent, and he walks in the door, and the first thing that happens to him is he gets told what an idiot he is, what a racist he is by by this liberal meathead. And I think I think people instantly, subconsciously understood that that Mike Stivic and this whole liberal position was parasitic on on Archie Bunker's uh, goodwill and his hard work and and that Archie Bunker deserved to, you know, since he's paying all the bills and and these people are living under his roof for free, you think he could come home and have 5 minutes on the on the chair, you know, but they they couldn't get around it. And that same thing happens all the time, uh, uh, Alec Baldwin's character on um, on was it uh, Thirty Rock, uh, kind of a liberal cartoon of a conservative. Everybody loves him. Uh, Denny Craig was a liberal cartoon of a conservative. William Shatner played, and everybody loved him. And and Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation. This is a liberals cartoon conservative. Somebody they want to make fun of, and those those are the guys who the audiences adore. Because they're real men, and they and they and they don't they don't play this you know this politically correct game, and I think even liberals are attracted to that. Yeah, there was also um, what's today Michael J. Fox as a kid. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, exactly. What was it? The, the, and everyone Alex, fell um, in love with him. Yeah, he was he was a Republican. He was a Reagan supporter. Uh, and um, Alex Keating, I think, and uh, yeah, yeah, and and th- no matter how many times they try, and no matter how much they turn up the ridiculousness on these conservative characters, the more conservative they make them, the better people like them. And Ron Swanson's just a great example of this. I mean, you know, he all he does is talk about how horrible government is, and 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 the liberals think that the that the audiences will laugh at him, but they don't laugh at him. They, they, they take his side. 
and um, it's a constant mystery to them. And since we're in the entertainment uh, little circle here now, the, I, I've been thinking about this, this is pretty much my wheelhouse, this intersection of politics and entertainment. And um, and I, I came to realize a couple of years ago that no matter how left-wing Hollywood is, and it is, it's exceedingly, exceedingly uh, left-wing, the basic fact of it is that entertainment is conservative by nature. All entertainment, storytelling is conservative by nature. And the best way to make that clear is just to say no one's ever going to go see a, a James Bond movie where James Bond confronts the evil supervillain with a strongly worded letter from the United Nations and then drive off in a Prius <laughs> at a reasonable speed. You know, that nobody wants to see that. They want to see a strong man with a gun saving a woman and then getting into a hot car and hauling ass. And, and no matter how hard they try, they cannot get people to watch movies about uh, committees or protests. Nobody wants to hear about, um, you know, uh, nobody wants to see a movie about a guy who's, um, you know, trying to... Uh, to get some Title IX thing done, nobody cares. They don't. They don't care. People want stories about individuals and individuals taking action, and that is inherently conservative. That's how the world is built. Well, what I what I enjoy is that the more they try to make them uh, look ridiculous as a conservative, the more truth actually comes out of that character's mouth. Because if you notice, Archie Bunker will say something a little ridiculous, but as the show progresses. Whatever he says, he ends up being the most sympathetic character. Same thing with Alex Keating. You see, in the end, they see what what mainstream America truly is about. You know, we all want to get along together. We don't really want to have all these fights and stuff. And we have compassion. We have tolerance, whereas the other side won't because they're trying to force their views. We just want to get along and go along. At the end of the day take care of our family that's more important than anything else exactly and um archie bunker was written to be a racist but he was never a bad guy you know he was an ignorant guy but he was never a bad guy and 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 carol o'connor's performance was so much a big part of that but you're but you're absolutely right people people just no matter how hard the left tries they can't get around the fact that people don't want to buy what they're selling and they do want to buy what we're selling. And we're selling it cheap. <laughs> Real cheap. Yeah, we're giving it away. Just take five minutes and listen. <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, now the left is getting hit in the social networks. Uh, there's this thing, a rhino group called the Lincoln Project. It's a never-Trump organization. And they got dinged by Facebook for pro- promoting pet partially false information uh the group's ad titled morning m-o-u-r-n-i-g morning in america played on reagan's moving uh morning in america m-o-r-n-i-g ad. and uh, it was saying that today more than 60,000 americans have died from a deadly virus donald trump ignored and uh, yeah yeah he didn't funny? do anything he ignored it I remember people calling him a racist back in January when he was shutting down trade with China. That must have been part of the ignoring he was doing before anyone else, while Como and, and Pelosi were saying, no, come on down to Chinatown and lick all the doorknobs you can. There's nothing to worry about. Everything's fine. Um, so, yeah, 
you know, if you want to start, uh, uh, if you want, if you want to position yourself as a as a never Trump conservative, you go right ahead. Um, that is not going to be a, a well attended um, party, and and the people that do show up are going to be the people you're not going to want to hang out with anyway. That's true, and you know there is a billboard uh, that was paid by a leftist group in. Uh, Times Square in Manhattan, uh, that is a count-up billboard on how many people have died from the coronavirus because Trump didn't do anything. <laughs> well, what Trump amazing? did was he – Trump said, we're going to let the governors handle this because the variation in, in, in cases and in, in, uh, environments is so great. We're going to let the governors handle this. So if there's a billboard that's counting up the number of deaths nationwide and it's in downtown New York – and New York is responsible for something like half of the total cases in, in the country, at least in terms of deaths. Then what they're really doing is they're advertising the, the miserable job that that um, that Cuomo did, and De Blasio. Uh, if if they're trying to pin New York on Trump, they can't have it both ways. Either either uh, Andrew Cuomo is a, is an amazing governor, or he's um, a guy who sent people with COVID-19 back to. Um, the nursing homes, so they could go in there and not only die there, but infect other people too. That's what he did. And so I think Donald Trump's um, handling of it as president has been extremely good, especially getting the um, the private sector involved. But the, but his the, the single great decision that he made, and I think it was a great decision politically, and I think it was a great decision morally and, and constitutionally, was when he basically said, look, this is going to be up to the governors in the states where we'll give them all the help we can but um, north dakota and um, manhattan are different places and to pretend that they're not uh, and and this whole federalist approach was brilliant uh, because he he basically let guys like cuomo you know hang themselves with their own with their own record yeah, and it's I mean, funny it's because i look at your governor newsom uh, mm-hmm. what he's doing, and then he wants to keep the state closed for like another three months. Uh, but he's opening beaches up in the liberal area of your state, but Seal Beach and beaches in, in that area where it's more conservative are remaining closed. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> no, no, he's not punishing his opponents, is he? No, no, no. You'll be pleased to know, by the way, uh, now, now this, of course, this is California. It doesn't really apply to America, but here in California, uh, you can. Uh, the, the, the latest I heard is that uh, Governor Newsom. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Has um, has released some of the um, restrictions on going to the beach. So you can go to the beach. You have to maintain six feet separation, and you have to wear a mask at, at all times. But don't worry, you're not going to need your mask because you cannot stay on the beach unless you are participating in an activity like surfing or swimming. So you can go and stay on the beach so long as you don't go and stay on the beach. And that is <laughs> California in a nutshell. How many people are going to wear a mask on the beach when you're sunbathing? Yeah, you've got half so. of the planet, no, you know, the entire Pacific Ocean, 40-knot wind coming in off the water. Uh, it, it's insane. The government is too stupid to have, to make these kind of decisions. And and this is the last thing I'll leave you with. I, I got to run, but this I, I've been thinking about this quite a lot, and I really think this is the problem. I think it's time for a constitutional amendment, and I don't. I, I am very very reluctant to mess around with the Constitution. But one of the things that I've found uh, as a result of this pandemic is this: the Constitution, I think, needs an amendment, and and the amendment needs to be a legal 
definition of what con- constitutes an emergency. What is a state of emergency and how do we deal with it? Because when governors and, and uh, forget just governors, mayors, uh, public health officials in Alameda County, if they are able to, to, to basically use emergency powers to, to restrict Americans' rights, then there needs to be a legal definition of what an emergency is, and we need to know that going into it. And furthermore, I think that amendment ought to say that the state of emergency is, is sundowned every 10 days. You get to call an emergency, and within 10 days you have to have either the, the, the federal legislature or, the, or the, the state legislatures vote to extend it, and they can only extend it for another 10 days, and that is based on what's going on right now. Because all of this trouble that we're in now, all of it, is due to the fact that these swine have been given emergency powers. The American people decided to, to they wanted to save lives and do the right thing. And like a bunch of suckers, we basically let them uh, use these emergency powers, and now they don't want to give them up. And since there's no definition of what an emergency is, if half of the hospitals in, or if the hospitals in California have been half empty during the entire pandemic, and they're telling us no, uh, they told us two weeks to to, uh, to flatten the curve. That was five weeks ago, and so, so I think that's the one thing that's most needed right now is a, a legal definition, not just for this pandemic, but for for the, for the future. What constitutes something that is uh, that? Um, justifies the use of emergency powers, and those powers have to sunset every week, every five days, ten days, whatever, and they've got to be voted on to renew. For this guy to be able to sit there and have hospitals in California go out of business because there's not enough patients, they close down till July because I feel like it, and in July I'll see how I feel in July. It's insane. It's nuts. And we let them do it. Actually, I'm... I'm going to borrow that idea and send it over to my state senator and see maybe if we can have that here in South Carolina. But, Bill, it has been fun with having you here. You're broadcasting live from the outskirts of Mortar. <laughs> People can find you at <laughs> BillWhittle.com. Yeah. yeah, I look out the window. I can Say see the giant red flaming eye there. You guys have a great day. <laughs> All right. You too. Yeah. All right, Bill Whittle, check him out, BillWhittle.com. And let's bring in our last and final victim uh, onto the show, Zach Smith. He is a legal fellow in the Meese Center for the Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Say that three times fast and get away with it. Good afternoon, Zach. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I have been having one of those days. I'm just glad today isn't the 13th. Otherwise, I'd be saying it's just a bad luck day. (laughs) I understand. Absolutely. We have gone on the show from one end of the gamut to the other. And now we're going to go talk about legal matters with you because that is your your expertise. Um, Holy cow. I don't even know where to start talking with you about a crossfire hurricane and Michael Flynn. <laughs> yeah, and I can absolutely understand that because this past week has been packed full of new developments and has kind of been a consistent flow of, of a changing legal landscape uh, for Michael Flynn in his case. You know, I'm sure you and most of your listeners know that last week the Department of Justice filed a motion to dismiss the criminal charges against General Flynn. 
And they filed that motion on the basis of some newly discovered evidence that came to light uh, that showed that they no longer thought that uh, the information they had could support the charge uh, against General Flynn of lying to the FBI. They said that anything he may have told the FBI wasn't material to any investigation they had ongoing. Well, this past week, instead of just dismissing the charges, the judge in Michael Flynn's case has taken the very unusual and in a lot of ways unprecedented step of uh, appointing a retired federal judge to argue against the Department of Justice's motion and to explore potentially uh, holding General Flynn in contempt of court uh, for committing perjury. And so that's just an unprecedented and it's a very odd development uh, in a series of very odd developments in General Flynn's case. You know, from the onset, they've been looking to take down uh, President Trump, and they've gone after one after another after another individuals, you know, affiliated with President Trump. Uh, Bob Gates is still, you know, under house arrest until they decide what to do with him. Uh, you've got Roger Stone, Jerome Corsi, uh, Manafort. You know, the list goes on. They went after KT McFarland, and they do the same thing over and over again. FBI agents show up at the front door, you know, unannounced, and next thing you know, you're in trouble. I mean, Roger Stone had a whole fleet, a whole SWAT team come down on him. And poor Katie McFarland, well, she was getting ready to take her kid to school, and she was home alone. And, and it's frightening. Well, I think one of the most disturbing things that we've learned about the investigation and prosecution of Michael Flynn is the disregard that the FBI and the Department of Justice had in following the standard protocols and procedures of an investigation. You know, we had James Comey bragging that he essentially skirted standard protocol and just sent a couple of guys over to the White House to talk to Michael Flynn. The policies and procedures uh, of the FBI are put in place for a reason, and they're there to help protect the integrity of the investigation and to protect abuses uh, against abuses by either rogue agents or rogue prosecutors. And unfortunately, what we've seen in this case is that they, they didn't follow those standard procedures and it's really created a lot of, of headaches for a lot of folks. And you see the same players, uh, Mueller, Comey, Strzok, McCabe, and with the influence of Biden and, and Clinton, it's the same players over and over and over again, and yet nothing is being done to prosecute them, but instead General Flynn is back in the hot seat. Plus, they're asking well, for third-party individuals that have nothing to do with the case to, to send briefs in to say whether or not you know, Flynn should be going through on the trial, to argue one side or the other. That is the weirdest right, thing I've ever it, heard. It is. It's, it's very odd. And in a lot of, and like I said, in a lot of ways, it's unprecedented. But I do think there are some encouraging signs to come out of this case. You know, the only reason that we know uh, a lot of this information that we now know in General Flynn's case is because Bill Barr appointed an independent U.S. attorney to review that investigation and review what exactly the FBI and prosecutors did in that case. And just like Bill Barr appointed an independent U.S. attorney to review Michael Flynn's case, he's also appointed an independent uh, U.S. attorney, John Durham, out of Connecticut, to review the larger you know, Crossfire Hurricane Russia investigation. And so that investigation is still ongoing, but I am hopeful that at the end of that, 
that process that we'll have a better understanding and that if anyone needs to be held accountable, that, that we'll have the appropriate and proper information to do so. You know, the funny part is they went after Flynn for simply doing his job. He was appointed by a president-elect Trump to be his foreign advisor. He was doing exactly what his job described him to do, and yet they claimed he violated the Logan Act, which is a 200-year-old law that no one has ever been successfully prosecuted for. So instead, they couldn't get him on a Logan Act, so instead they decided to get him on perjury. And yet you had... Let me see. Where, oh, here we go. Jesse Jackson, Danny Glover, Sean Penn, Dennis Rodman, Ted right. Kennedy, and John Kerry have violated the Logan Act repeatedly, and no one goes after him. Why? Oh, well, oh, that's right. That's right. The way that other political party. Well, and I think it's important to highlight just how unusual and odd justifying a federal investigation based on the Logan Act is. As you mentioned, uh, many individuals ostensibly routinely violate the Logan Act. You know, and the consensus today among legal scholars of both the left and the right is that the Logan Act is probably unconstitutional. It probably violates uh, an individual's First Amendment rights. And in the entire history of the Logan Act, over 200 years, only two people have been charged with violating the Logan Act. The last time somebody was charged with a Logan Act violation was 1852, and neither of those two individuals were successfully prosecuted. And so the idea that the incoming national security advisor, by having a conversation with the Russian ambassador, was somehow violating the Logan Act, that's just absurd. What about ex-President Obama going over to Israel, actively campaigning to make sure Bibi Netanyahu doesn't get reelected. That didn't work, but he, was, he actually sent uh, people over there, and he went personally to campaign against another country's president. Well, it just highlights how unusual the circumstances surrounding General Flynn's investigation and prosecution were. Uh, like you've mentioned, John Kerry. John Kerry has repeatedly uh, had contact with foreign governmental entities without the authorization of the, the current administration officials. And so the idea that somebody would be prosecuted under the Logan Act is really unusual and beyond the pale in a lot of ways. And, you know, the unfortunate thing about General Flynn's case as well is that not only was he having difficulties with the Department of Justice and the FBI, but, you know, one of the other aspects of this case that hasn't gotten as much attention as it should is the initial lawyers he retained in the case. They, it looks like now, based on what we know, they most likely had a conflict of interest in the case. You know, more information could come out that could change that. But based on what we know, uh, their representation of him was very troublesome uh, because one of the charges the Department of Justice was exploring was potentially uh, a potential violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And the firm that represented General Flynn on his criminal charges had initially advised him that he didn't need to register, uh, which is one of the things the Department of Justice was threatening to prosecute him for. And so all around, the, the prosecution of General Flynn, this case, it's, it's just been a mess. Absolutely, an absolute mess. And basically, it was a, a huge frame-up. 
but now what's going on with these two judges is just amazing. Uh, the Covington lawyers are the ones you were uh, talking about that represented Flynn and his son. Um, right. I'm just I'm just hoping that he can get through this because what they have damaged him, his family, his finances, and this was an honorable man. And I like the fact that uh, President Trump said, "Oh yeah, I'd like I in a heartbeat I'd rehire him." You know, we have to fight back on this. The, the, the blatant breaking of the law by the former administration. We're still finding out. And now we have the president of uh, Mexico calling for a full-out investigation on Fast and Furious. And that has been going on for more than a, for about a decade. And nothing has been well, done. And now finally he's calling for that. And I think this case, General Flynn's case, uh, and what you're saying highlights an important point. You know, one of the unfortunate byproducts of General Flynn's investigation is it looks like that it was a politicized investigation. You know, as you mentioned, Peter Strazek, uh, Lisa Page were involved, and they they were removed from their positions in the FBI uh, for inappropriate politically motivated text messages they sent during the course of their investigation. And anytime it looks like a criminal investigation is tainted uh, with political bias or political motives, uh, it really undermines the confidence that all of us as Americans have in our justice system and in the Department of Justice. And that's unfortunate. And I'm hopeful uh, that Bill Barr, by appointing these independent U.S. attorneys uh, to investigate uh, a lot of these problematic situations, uh, I think he's taking a, a good step in the direction of helping to restore uh, the trust and faith that a lot of us can have in, in the Department of Justice. Now, um, you, you I sent me something, or I guess Shirley did, uh, that the Heritage Foundation has a National Coronavirus Recovery Commission, uh, and it's gathering top thinkers to figure out, you know, how to reopen America. Um, are you involved in that directly? I am not directly involved in that, but several of my colleagues from the Mies Center are involved. And then across the Heritage Foundation uh, in general, folks from pretty much every department are involved in it. And as you mentioned, they've already put out a lot of proposals, uh, a lot of good recommendations to help help us figure out the best path forward and how to, to reopen. And our proposals, uh, in our specific Department of Heritage, you know, we're, we focus on law and policy. And so a lot of what we spent our time over the past few weeks focusing on are the lockdowns and the, the legal restrictions uh, that unfortunately a lot of us have been experiencing. And so I'm hopeful that, that some of our recommendations and policies will, you know, will help us uh, as we kind of work our way over the next weeks and months. Well, one of the things that has been proposed, I believe by Mitch McConnell, uh, was to allow states to declare bankruptcy. Now, a lot of these states, such as California, uh, were underwater before this pandemic even hit. So it's unconstitutional for a state to declare bankruptcy. You know, the framers had put in place right. mechanisms to prevent that. Uh, but yet, because a state's government is a bad actor prior to this, we're going to get them a free ride? Right. And I've actually written a piece about I've actually written a piece about this on the Daily Signer. And so if your readers want more information, they can go there 
and take a look at my piece. But you're exactly right. Whether states can declare bankruptcy is an open constitutional question, and there, there are serious constitutional concerns uh, about letting a state declare bankruptcy because they are a separate sovereign. But I think your point's well taken. You know, the coronavirus and any federal assistance provided as a result of the coronavirus uh, should not be used to, to bail out fiscally irresponsible states. You know, some states, like Illinois, New Jersey, uh, have very low credit ratings right now. And so one of the things I, that I think those states need to focus on is finding, or finding ways to, to solve their fiscal problems uh, without relying on federal bailouts. And so any funds that Congress provides for coronavirus relief should be used uh, for coronavirus relief and not to help bail out states, you know, for example, their pension plan or something like that. Well, yeah. Well, if we look at Nancy Pelosi's $3 trillion stimulus, oh, Lord. But then again, we do know it's not going to get past the Senate, and it's definitely not going to be signed by Trump. So that's dead in the water. Right. But they're coming right. up with all these cockeyed things. Um, you, you have 60 different mentions for cannabis in the stimulus plan, uh, but do you see anything there specifically for the doctors, the hospitals, the, the first responders dealing directly with the COVID? No, you really don't. So it's all right. poor. And, but we, that's why people like you and like the Heritage Foundation are so important in, in seeing this and bring it to our attention. Um, I'm looking at the clock. We're down to our last 10 minutes. Jeez, this whole show is going so well, fast. Um, well, and I will, if <laughs> I can, I will mention... I will mention one other thing. You know, my colleague in the, the Mies Center at Heritage, Hans von Spakovsky, has written a lot on uh, voter fraud and election integrity. And some of the proposals we've seen coming out as a result of this coronavirus legislation is, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi is proposing very uh, generous terms for, for mail-in elections. And so I think anytime there's a proposal for uh, mail-in elections, we have to be mindful of the potential for voter fraud. And Hans has written extensively on some appropriate steps that states can take and some areas that, where they should be wary and a little more cautious. And so I'd encourage you, know, you or your listeners, if, if you'd like more information, you know, please go to heritage.org and look at some of the, the items that Hans has written on, on election integrity and voter fraud, because that's very, very relevant right now with some of the proposals. Yeah, well, we started off our show with Mandy Merritt, the RNC press secretary, and that is one of the things we did discuss because there is a new app they put out there for, to protect the vote um, that anyone can go and use to see how they can help protect the vote. Uh, I have a friend of mine who has a website, Protect the Vote uh, USA, which is going uh, fighting against uh, eliminating the electoral college by the popular vote, by having the electoral college vote for whoever is the popular vote. Uh, so there's many things. We talked about ballot harvesting, uh, which a lot of states have right. and people don't realize it. My own state here in South Carolina, an individual can go out and collect 12 votes, not as liberal as California, where you can collect as many as you like. Uh, but still, state by state, you'd be amazed how many states have uh, ballot harvesting. And these are things right. that we have to be aware of. Much less, you know, cleaning out the voter rolls, seeing how many dead people are still on there, people who have moved are still on the voter rolls, getting that cleared out. 
There's, there's a lot right. that we as individuals could do, which is I'm glad the Heritage Foundation is also out there helping to protect our vote. Um, just for the last few minutes that we have you here, um, one of the things that we thought was settled was the Little Sisters of the Poor. But as I understand, they were heard by the Supremes yesterday, right? Uh, it was actually last week that they were heard by the Supreme Court. And, yeah, you're right. You know, the, the kind of the saga of the Little Sisters of the Poor is really an unfortunate one. Uh, they're an order of nuns that are dedicated to helping the elderly poor. And one of their major objections to um, Obamacare was that they were going to be forced to provide contraceptive coverage in violation of their Catholic beliefs. And so they went to the court. Uh, the court issued a favorable ruling to them uh, several years ago, you know, with the idea that, that the administration and the Little Sisters of the Poor and others like them could hopefully reach a resolution uh, well, when President Trump came into office, the administration issued favorable regulations for them. And a couple of states, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, were unhappy with these regulations. And so they sued the Trump administration. And that was the suit uh, that was heard at the Supreme Court last week. And the one where the Little Sisters of the Poor were attempting to intervene and be heard in that suit in order to protect the accommodations that they had received from the Trump administration. And we have no decision on this, so it's going to be interesting. And they did this by um, the video conferencing, um, in which Nancy Pelosi calls the House back into session after turning around and saying, no, we're going to do this by video. Um, right. Last, just about seven minutes left. I don't know if you've been following this case up in Connecticut about the high school runners, the two females, or three females, I'm saying, sorry, are suing uh, because they're losing out on scholarships and possible future earnings because of these male athletes claiming to be females. And now the judge turned around and told the attorney that you cannot address the transgenders as males. Is this going really nuts? Unfortunately, I haven't been following uh, that case too closely, but I do think it highlights an important issue that we're going to see uh, kind of percolating uh, the way through the courts over the next several years. Another case that was heard at the Supreme Court this week uh, involved religious institutions and what types of lawsuits those religious institutions can be subject to uh, from employment practices. You know, typically an employee who feels they've been treated unfairly because of their race or gender or age can sue their employer. Uh, but there's something called the ministerial exception. You know, a, a church or a religious group shouldn't have to hire somebody if that person uh, doesn't, you know, support their religious beliefs or they have a religious, you know, generally held religious reason for taking certain actions. And so the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case dealing with that issue earlier, earlier this week and I think that's related to and closely tied to, you know, a lot of the issues we're seeing with same-sex marriage, transgendered individuals, and will kind of become more prevalent over the next several years as, as issues like the one you mentioned really start, you know, becoming more common. And again, you know, lawsuits are being filed over, over those types of issues. Well, Zach, it has been a, a lot of fun having you with us. You're at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. They can find you at heritage.org. There's so many things going on legally-wise that, you know, if we don't pay attention, we may find our own constitutional rights 
taken away before our very eyes. I mean, Obamacare was a perfect example of overstepping and taking away our constitutional rights, our God-given rights. Uh, thankfully, it's slowly being overturned and we're getting them back, but we've got to fight. And if we don't fight, we're going to lose this nation. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show this evening. I really appreciate it. And again, you know, I think you're absolutely right. That's important for everyone to be involved and engaged and paying attention to all of the issues going on right now. And so I, I do appreciate you taking the time to have me on. Oh, well, we'll welcome you back anytime, Zach. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Have a great weekend. All right. Zach Smith, find him over at heritage.org. Uh, all right, Curtis, that's all we got. We're down to our last <laughs> – excuse me. <laughs> I was holding off that cough. Our last four minutes. And uh, I don't have anyone up yet for this week, but uh, I will be starting to get back into the full swing of things and getting guests booked back in again. Uh, I want to thank everyone that joined us here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, over here on Facebook. Uh, hopefully it went up on YouTube. Also, you, you can be joining us on Spreaker, Stitcher, and also up on iHeart. If you have the iHeart app on your smart device, your, tel- your cell phone or your TV or whatever, uh, check us out on iHeart. All you have to do is just look for the search name, Southern Sense Talk, and we'll pop up. So until then, that's all I've got to say, Curtis. Well, I hope we can uh, find out what the audio problem is so we can have some audio next time, hear the music, dedication music. I think it was a glitch with Skype because I had to kick myself off and get back in, and I think Skype was what did it. Uh, But after that, everyone was able to hear the guest. But uh, I will redo the audio um, on YouTube to make sure everything goes through on that one. So until then, I'm going to say good night and God bless. All right.